Welcome to TopCast and the newsletter, to both. Uh, I was going to only release this as a newsletter, and then I realized, well, look, this is going on for so long, I'm going to put this into my normal, regular TopCast feed. So welcome to both sets of listeners, people who listen to my newsletter, people who listen to TopCast, and apologies to the TopCast listeners. This is not about a book. Uh, this is not about a particular issue. This is literally going to be me meandering through my Twitter feed over the last few days. Let me explain more. A weekend spent on Twitter. I ended last newsletter with an observation about people quitting Twitter. Although I cannot properly know someone else's subjective experience at any time, including what they experience on Twitter, I did implore anyone else considering leaving the platform to not delete their entire account. Deleting, it seemed to me, and though this might sound dramatic, was a little like burning a book. Your book might be long, might be short, but it is a record and some others might appreciate it. In particular, this particular book of tweets that is your own stream and set of threads involves conversations with others, and those conversations are left depleted and confusing with your deletion. If one simply leaves Twitter never to return, then all your upsides are maintained and none of our downsides are obtained. It's just a common courtesy. Call it a kindness, if you will. You aren't hurt by text you leave behind any more than you are hurt by emails you regret to have sent or sentences in books you might have rephrased. So that's one issue with Twitter. The other issue is the rampant pathologizing of the platform. This occurs both on the right and left politically. There's furious agreement that Twitter can be damaging to the social and psychological fabric. I've always resisted the impulse to readily agree with these sentiments about any social media platform. I really do think more speech is better. More creativity is better. I really do think one can have fun on the platforms and ignore the trolls. The overall good of these platforms outweighs the evil. Better to have creative children engaged in dancing and yeah, political activism we might not agree with than doing what they used to do in the past, not being creative, not being engaged, not using their minds in the same way that they are now. For me, when it comes to trolls, if someone is genuinely unpleasant, I don't block them, I mute them. Even before I heard Ricky Gervais say the same thing, I figured out myself that there was something about the person at the other end not knowing you were simply no longer hearing them anymore. They were perhaps screaming into the ether, tweeting into the void. I thought to myself, well, if they're doing that in an attempt to get a rise out of me, they're not using that same energy to go after someone else now. It's a win for me and a win for my imaginary protectorate. It may even be a win for the troll who eventually realises that such an approach does not always bear fruit. So yeah, that's why I mute rather than block in general. No one knows they've been muted and they can just keep on tweeting at me and tweeting at me forevermore. So my experience is largely positive. But some people apparently have a terrible experience online. They keep coming back. I find this strange. Of course, I am not tweeting regularly to enumerate the evils committed by, let's say, the deeply religious, to put the majority of the planet offside at times. But I have been known to go pretty hard on anything politically to the left of Ayn Rand. Yes, I'm joking about that. 
I do regard her as being off-axis, as I like to say. But most of all, of course, I do not have the number of followers that those who complain about the platform most tend to do. If you've got more than a million followers, of course, your experience is going to be wildly different from someone with less than 10% of that, much less than 1% of that. But I wanted to find out if I could do something as my natural self to have a broadly negative experience on Twitter, simply by being on Twitter. So I did a private first-person experiment on myself. Twitter followers of mine might not have noticed anything different. I suppose I check Twitter three or four times a day in general. There are specific times uh, when I get up and make my first cup of tea of the morning, I take tea with Twitter. When editing my podcast, it's often a very long process and I'll take a break with Twitter. When I watch the half hour commercial news in Australia at 6pm, yes, I am one of the people that still does this, I'll simultaneously check Twitter, paying only half attention to both things. When I'm cooking dinner, my partner sometimes plays loud music, so at those times we're not talking to each other, and then I'll also check Twitter, invariably getting something on the iPhone that needs to be wet wiped off later. But if I'm writing, if I'm recording, or if I'm reading, which are the other three crucial aspects of making a podcast besides the editing, I cannot read Twitter. I don't like my flow broken when I write, including when I write down just some points for a podcast, much less a script, which I do at times, such as I've written right now for this. When I'm recording, of course, it's completely out of the question that I would check Twitter. And reading a book is the same. The books I read tend to make arguments that might take a chapter to reach the central conclusion of. If one gives up or takes a break partway through by checking Twitter, one can lose the gist of things. So all of that said, what did I do differently recently? What was this experiment? Well, this weekend just passed. I spent almost the entire weekend, and I'll include the Friday in that, with Twitter. Australia was playing against Argentina in the soccer or football World Cup. I knew I'd have to be up earlier than normal if I wanted to catch the match, and I did so. My friends and I were watching it together virtually. And so because of this football match, my regular weekend schedule was out of schedule. <laughs> so I made the decision on the Friday, well, I'd just do less of my usual stuff and spend more time on Twitter. Lots more time tweeting and reading tweets and let's just see what comes back. Would my experience be different? Would it be negative? I wouldn't do anything deliberately provocative or silly or out of character. I just wanted to do much more of what I'd normally do. Would the negativity increase as well? Surely it's a numbers game. However much negativity comes at one on Twitter per unit time, well, the overall total of negativity is going to increase with increased use. But is it not cancelled out by all that fun and positivity? Well, if we're led to believe the common wisdom on this sort of thing, human beings are supposed to have something like 10 compliments cancelled by one critique or insult. I can imagine that's true in some cases. After all, it's going to depend on the strength of the compliments and the insults. Nine, that's a nice shirt you've got on, compliments in a row, is not going to make up for the one. Everything you've ever done with your life is a waste of time and does nothing but make the world a worse place kind of insult. <laughs> Although I guess that latter is two insults. But you get my point. So commencing with a tweet I sent on Friday, I spent the next three days tweeting far more than usual. Would it have some terrible effect on my mind? 
Would I see the social decay that's out there? Might I become that dreaded addicted to social media, unable to put the phone down and shaking if I didn't get a fix within the next hour? Well, this is a chronicle of my experience. For the purpose of this newsletter, I'm simply going to go through the tweets and replies in question uh, in the podcast here now. If you go to the text version of the newsletter, I'm not going to put everything there. I'm not going to put the tweets there and my comments on the tweets. It'll just be too long. I just want to be able to describe the context of the tweet and give some more opinions and reflections on uh, the tweets that I sent or the tweets that I liked and the threads that I participated in. That's all being done here now for this audio podcast, but you won't get that on the regular newsletter text form. For what it's worth, this uh, could be kind of a fun format for a regular part of the podcast or newsletter, or even a live stream, as I sometimes do. But as someone chided me recently very gently on Twitter, I've already got too many product streams and it's hard for followers to keep up. I agree. How do you think I feel? (laughs) Anyways, I am having fun doing all of this stuff. Otherwise, well, I wouldn't do it. That anyone pays any attention at all is a bonus. So I'm just going to reflect off the cuff on the tweets that I'm about to mention. The rule I set myself here is to discuss any threads I contributed to, obviously that includes all those that I started, and any tweet that I liked. I should say, I used to use the like button as a bookmark, and I really did go back and check on those bookmarks. Again, that's a function of being a podcaster of my kind. I find valuable stuff online on Twitter. And sometimes I I want to go back and to see what I read on Twitter, what sparked my interest, and then I can mention it in the podcast. That's why I use the like button in this way. But I have slightly changed my approach to this. One reason is that in Sam Harris's explanation of why he quit Twitter, he also explained that he used a program to mass ban anyone who liked a particular tweet that was critical of him at some point. That seems like a clever idea. After all, you get rid of a lot of people who don't particularly like you and are probably going to be trolls. Now, I didn't get included in any of Sam's mass bans. Sam actually followed me for years. But I did sometimes used to like, by which I mean bookmarked, tweets with which I did not agree. I can imagine I could have been part of Sam's mass ban because he would have thought that I literally liked what I'd liked, although I don't regard the like function as meaning literally like. Uh, I always interpret it as, well, something that I'd like to read later on or like to come back to, not, you know, have an affection for, (laughs) but that's just me. Okay, so I'm idiosyncratic in that way. Really, I often would like things, and this wasn't the most common way in which I'd like things, but I, I did used to like things that... I thought, well, that's a nice statement of a perspective I think is completely false, but I can understand why people think it's plausible. And so, you know, I'd end up bringing it up on the podcast. And that would be one of the functions that I would use the like button for. But I can see how people would misinterpret it. And of course, I now realize as well, and this has been going on forever, that Twitter kind of uses the like button as as a retweet. It tells you what other people have liked, which I think is pretty silly. You know, if I want other people to see a particular tweet, then I'll retweet it. I don't really want anyone to see my likes, but, you know, I'm not in charge of Twitter. Anyways, without further ado, let's begin with these tweets that I want to talk about. 
and more broadly, what my overall experience was like over the three days of spending more time on the platform than usual. So the first tweet that formed part of my more than regular time spent on Twitter was in response to a Petri Kajanda who used ChatGPT, which is this artificial intelligence bot that can write essays and write poems and write screenplays and, well, you can talk to it. And it's extremely impressive. It's not creative, but it's just extremely impressive and being able to automatically generate large sections of text which are coherent and they can rhyme and they can be funny. It can tell you jokes. It's, 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 it's amazing. But I don't think it's creative. And I'll, I'll come back to the reasons why I think that. I think that because it's just mashing up pre-existing text that it's already got. It's not creating new knowledge, okay? Listeners to TalkCast will know what I'm talking about. Anyway, Petri sent me an essay that the computer had written. I say computer, the program had written, the chat GPT had written, in answer to the question that he put to it, which is, what are the main arguments for the multiverse and who made them? And it's a nice essay, but what Petri asked me was, I wonder what grade Brett would give these essays in his class. And in response, I just said, quote, in a class, I escaped having to do that. The technique was to make notes and have a conversation with the student about it. As a marker where I never met the student involved, it would depend entirely upon the criteria that the students had access to against which it was graded. Okay, so let me unpack that a little bit. Yes, so I was a teacher for a long time and I was also and what's called an external marker. And so I would grade essays from students all around the world who were trying to gain entry to university. And this was one of the methods that was used by the universities to determine whether or not they were sufficiently knowledgeable, qualified, had the background knowledge in order to get into university, you know, that kind of thing. But aside from that situation, which is where, what, what happened was I used to mark these things called theory of knowledge essays. And the theory of knowledge is, well, not really like the theory of knowledge as I explain it. It's irrelevant. It's irrelevant to what I want to talk about here and now. But what we would do is the organisation that the students were writing the essay for were quite upfront about, here's what you need to do in order to get an A, here's what you need to do in order to get a B, and so on and so forth. Okay, I won't go into the details, but they would provide the grading criteria for the students and sample essays and, you know, examples of what it took to get an A. And so a sufficiently committed student could practice and learn how to get a better and better essay. So as a marker, all I had to do was to compare the essay to the criteria. Yes, yes, people are screaming at the audio right now saying there's all sorts of problems with this. I completely agree with you. But in terms of that kind of model, it's better than some where you may not even have a criteria where it's the whim of the market. Here, in fact, not only did you have the criteria, which was made quite explicit, and people were trained in how to interpret the criteria, including the students who were trained in how to understand the criteria, and, as I say, sample essays, but also the essays were sometimes double and triple marked. They were checked and checked again, and the student would always have the option where they receive their grade back at the end of this whole process of having the thing remarked. You know, just in case to check whether or not they really deserved the grade that they got. I say deserved, you understand what I mean by that. So that's one situation. On the other hand, as a teacher in the classroom where I actually taught this stuff, 
Well, I never really had to mark an essay. I never had to grade one properly. And I, I did have problems and, you know, I would debate with people about the conflict of interest <laughs> that you would have as teacher and marker. This was often what happens. It's what happens in the classroom. You're supposed to be training students in order to become better, helping them learn, that kind of thing, and simultaneously grading them. So there is a conflict there, which is inherent in many, many educational systems. But I managed to largely escape that in this particular situation. So I could get away with not grading things. So as I said to Petri, well, when it came to grading this open AI thing in the classroom, I wouldn't. But if I needed to, I would need a criteria, you know, on what basis are you grading this, you know, what, what is the criteria I'm using in order to give it an A or a B or a C or an F? If I'm just looking at the facts, well, I tend to give this particular essay an F for a couple of reasons. One of the essays, he included a couple of essays. Um, one of the essays he also included for me was to ask the AI, he asked the AI this question, write an essay of Popperian epistemology explaining its main points and counterarguments in detail. Now, I won't read the essay, but my commentary was that I might have to fail ChatGPT, the open AI, for apparently not doing the required readings. Because, well, to quote just part of the essay, the essay said, counterarguments to Popperian epistemology include that the concept of falsifiability is too narrow and that it excludes many important theories and ideas that cannot be proven false, end quote. So the, the chatbot has said that that counts as a counter-argument, that a counter-argument to Papyrian epistemology is the concept of falsifiability is too narrow. <laughs> you know, funnily enough, this is precisely what, well, every critique of Popper has ever kind of said. Now, to mention names, this is what Sean Carroll has said. This is what Sabine Hossenfelder has said. This is what various other philosophers, not to mention physicists, have said over time, that falsifiability is a naive criterion in order to determine whether or not something meets the, meets the standard of being scientific or not. Popper never said that all it takes is falsifiability. David Deutsch has underlined this and tried to explain this. It's a criteria of demarcation, not a criteria of meaning. Any crank with a falsifiable theory about how the world is going to end tomorrow has a falsifiable theory that does not make it scientific. And you would know this if you actually read Popper. So ChatGPT there, who's writing an essay about Popperian epistemology, I would fail for not having done the readings. They haven't really read Popper. They can't possibly write an essay on Popperian epistemology without reading Popperian epistemology. It doesn't, it doesn't meet my standard if you say, well, I read a critique of Popperian epistemology. I read what Sean Carroll said about Popperian epistemology, and now I'm going to write an essay about it. Well, that's not good enough. I want quotes from Popper himself extensively and in context. Saying falsifiability is you know, naive or insufficient, okay, fine, you can say that. But that's not Popperian epistemology. That's not what Pop, Popper never said, <laughs> that, that falsifiability is sufficient in science. Far from it. He understood it was about explanations, just as David Deutsch has underlined that it's about explanations. David Deutsch went further, but you read Popper and he knows. He talks about the importance and power of explanations in, well, not just science, but everywhere. It's, it's about you have explanatory power. Okay, so that's the first tweet. A nice positive exchange, a fun exchange too. Uh, and, you know, I'd already begun using this 
chat GPT thing, this, this fantastic program online to, to write my own essays. And we'll come we'll, to get it to write some essays for me and poems for me and plays for me and, and jokes for me. This was all fun stuff. So we'll come back to that. Next, chronologically, is, is me responding to uh, someone else who has pointed out that the Jews were trending. The Jews were trending, just this, that, that phrase, the Jews, it, it was trending on Twitter for a couple of days. In fact, over and over again, it came, seems to come up. And, and this person said, quote, the Jews every damn day, the obsession is unreal. I can't imagine living my life like that, waking up to a world obsessed with attacking my faith and identity, end quote. Quite right. Quite right. And this person is from Iraq. I guess they are Islamic as well, so a brave person saying that, actually. In fact, she calls herself Miss Iraq. I wonder if she she was a Miss Iraq at some point. Perhaps, perhaps. Uh, she also says that she's a Zionist, so well done her. Anyway, what I've said, I've, I've, I've quoted her tweet and I have said myself, quote, David Deutsch explains the obsession as the impulse to preserve the legitimacy of hurting Jews. No one knows precisely why the pattern exists. Search David's tweets for more instances. And I've linked there to uh, one of David's tweets talking about the pattern. Uh, the pattern is this phenomenon that David Deutsch has observed. He has tried to explain this obsession that people have with the Jews over time. And it, it's a pattern because it seems to come up, if not periodically, at least sporadically, now and again, generation after generation, perhaps more frequently than you know, once per generation. But it has come up throughout, well, let's just say the entire history of the existence of the Jews. This It explains anti-Semitism, but it's broader than that. It explains also just the obsession, the special focus that Jewish people have fixated upon them from one day wants to say every other culture that exists, even cultures that never come across Jewish people. Why is this? What's going on? Well, David Deutsch has turned his considerable mind and creativity to this. Uh, I did a course with David on this a couple of years ago with the historian Richard Landis. Uh, let's just say that whatever you think the cause is, okay, my jealousy or envy of the success of the Jewish people, uh, the state of Israel, whatever you think it is, it's wrong, okay? It, it does not account for the pattern. David has refutations of the reasons why those explanations, the explanations that everyone thinks they know, uh, can't actually be true. Uh, scapegoating is another one. Uh, you know, he's mentioned scapegoating that, you know, well, it, it's possible, but it's, it's not a good explanation. It's not a good explanation of why the pattern exists. No one knows why the pattern exists. No one really knows why people are obsessed with the Jews in the way that they are, why there is this special kind of discrimination that exists in our world that stands apart from other kinds of discrimination. It's not of the same kind. Uh, other kinds of discrimination seem to fade away. This one fades and comes back, fades and comes back. It's an unusual phenomenon and worth investigating, worth trying to understand. So look up David Deutsch's tweets for the pattern. Uh, he, he may be bringing out a book which will touch on this at some point in the future so we can look forward to that so again that's another nice interaction on twitter not a nice topic but you know it's it's nice to be able to explain some of that 
what I think is crucially important content that David Deutsch delivers to us about, well, in particular, this kind of prejudice that exists. It's important to understand this kind of thing. Moving on, um, Elon Musk tweeted about his Neuralink device, and he said it's ready for humans, or he's confident that the Neuralink device is ready for humans. This is this Neuralink device is the brain implant. Okay, and so uh, someone has responded. Uh, this person is uh, at Willow the Wisp, and they've said, "This is insanely dystopian to me. We are meant to be human, not something else." And a person I follow, and it follows me, uh, he calls himself. Natural general intelligence at real-time AI. I can't remember your name. I'm sorry. I wish people would use their <laughs> real names. The same as Willow the Wisp. You know, you can't properly credit people. Nonetheless, um, natural general intelligence has said, I think his name's Matt. Anyway, he, he has said, thoughts about pacemakers, prosthetics for missing limbs, hearing aids, etc. Uh, and I've liked that tweet and quite right, quite right. Um, you know, people who object to the brain implant, do they object to the pacemaker? Do they object to prosthetics, you know, putting stuff in your body? And I've responded to that, quote, yes, people are minds, not bodies. So even pocket calculators and cars are add-ons that creative minds use. So yeah, people are particularly worried about, you know, technology brain interfaces properly considered, you're not even your brain, you're your mind. And we don't know exactly how the mind is there in the brain. But not all of the brain is mind. So if you've got a problem with your brain, then it just might help to have an implant of some sort. No one's going to be forced, one would hope, to have a Neuralink thing. But if you want a Neuralink thing and it's got certain benefits, why not? Why should that be insanely dystopian? How does it stop you from being human? If it does stop you from being human then so does a pocket calculator stop you from being human because it's giving you capacities that no human without the pocket calculator can achieve, or broadly speaking. Okay, so that's that. Next, Gad Sad, the evolutionary psychologist who have severe disagreements with uh, when it comes to his, well, almost his entire worldview. <laughs> Not quite, but you know, certainly his academic area of evolutionary psychology, I think is, well, it's a complete scam. That aside, Gad's had the person, he's, he's a funny guy, he's a brave person, he's willing to stand up against uh, certain political movements of our time that are totalitarian and coercive, and uh, he's a clear thinker even if he's got the wrong ideas. And I think he's one of these people who take away the evolutionary psychology nonsense and everything else he says, broadly speaking, still makes sense. <laughs> In fact, it is, it is only uh, made more clear and valuable by removing the nonsense. I said this recently about Daniel Hannan. Daniel Hannan is a great defender of capitalism, free trade, freedom, liberty, and so on. But then he throws on top of that the unnecessary assumption that therefore evolutionary psychology is real because our natural evolved impulse is to be tribal and i just think that's wrong or our natural uh, evolved impulse is to hoard stuff for the winter like we're bears or something or other or squirrels <laughs> we're not we're creative thinkers if we have a tendency to hoard things for the winter then it's a cultural meme it's not inherited in our genes it might very well be inherited by our culture 
And we might learn these things as babies on mother's knee, I like to say. And even then, mum might not be teaching us these things explicitly. It just comes to us via the way in which language is constructed, uh, the kind of conversations that mum is having. And the reason mum is having those conversations is because she was taught certain things on her mother's knee and so on going back generations and generations. But this is not to say any of that knowledge, any of that ideology is coming via the genes, which is the reason why Daniel Hannon is wrong. The best explanation is it's coming via language and various other inexplicit means, which are not the genes, okay? Just it's coming via some other method of learning. Some of these deep cultural memes, namely altruism, socialism, that kind of thing, definitely are out there in society and, and they're very resistant to, to being refuted, let's say. By better ideas uh, for reasons that well well beyond the scope of this particular episode right now but let's just say that you know, you've got anti-rational means operate anti-rational memes operating and so on but whatever the case it doesn't come via the genes anyway gadsad <laughs> gadsad is responding to kanye west kanye west is in the news because kanye west is becoming a notorious anti-semite uh he thinks he wants to run for president of the United States, but as other people have observed, he appears to be having what might be called a mental breakdown in public. Okay, all of that said, uh, Kanye West appeared on a very famous podcast called Tim Cast, and during that podcast, he, he walked out. He walked out of the podcast uh, because he brought up, he brought up, the Jews. He brought up the Jews when he was questioned, rather rather mildly, I should say, about what exactly he meant, you know, to try and unpack what, what his criticisms were of the Jews. He walked out. He, he got upset, he had a hissy fit, and he walked out of the interview. Anyway, so Gadsad, who's also a podcaster, prominent podcaster, he has tweeted at Kanye West and said, hey, quote, hey, Kanye, I'm a Lebanese Jew trying to understand your animus towards the Jews. Would love to have a conversation with you on my show, The Sad Truth. One rule, it's a conversation, not a Kanye West monologue, end quote. Okay, fine, fair enough. But I tweeted at Gad Sad, quote, But given the experience of Timcast, you already know agreements, rules, social mores, or logic are not something he, Kanye West, would respect. So even if he accepted your rule, he's a person who does not respect agreements as this fictional philosopher observed. <laughs> and this fictional philosopher is uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> so, <laughs> there's this famous scene from the movie Twins, and, uh, well, this is the scene. Let me just play it. You have no respect for logic. And I have no respect for those with no respect for logic. You're a very stupid person. Okay, so I don't agree with the implied violence <laughs> and i don't think uh, uh it's a stupid person it's a stupid idea though um stupid idea i don't think there are stupid people there are stupid ideas though stupid ideas so but but i agree with the basic idea there that uh one can have no respect for those with no respect for logic in the sense that if the person has already demonstrated there and, and explicitly said or you know behaved in such a way that they're not going to respect logic then it's silly of you, it's illogical of you to persist in trying to get them to respect logic in some way, shape or form. Let them come around. Why waste time 
if, if Kanye West is the person that walks out of interviews when questioned very mildly about something, then he's that kind of person. He's demonstrated that. So you'd have to take steps in order to persuade one that he's not going to do that. And it's not the first time he's done it, by the way. Not the first time he's done it. But Gad said, I don't know. I, I'm concerned that Gad said might just want Kanye West on because it, it does a lot more for Gad Sad than what it was going to do for Kanye West. But, uh, again, if you're, if you're an honest interlocutor, uh, you have to accept that someone like Kanye West is no longer worth platforming in that way. He's allowed to have his free speech. He can say all these abhorrent things. But do you want to help? <laughs> and in terms of teaching him the error of his ways, does that need to be done live on a podcast? There are many problems with this. The central one of which is... If the person has already demonstrated that they're not going to uh, adhere to agreements like come on my podcast and have a conversation with me, if they're not going to stick to that once they've said, oh, yeah, that's what I'll do, then why would you go along and think that things are going to be any different for you? Isn't that sometimes regarded as a definition of stupidity? Trying the same thing over and again and thinking you'll get a different outcome. Next tweet, I've responded to Nivy, who's at Nivy, N-I-V-I, and he's used the chat GPT open AI artificial intelligence thing to, quote, write a scene where a right-wing Republican and a woke liberal go car shopping. And so dutifully, the chat GPT has written the script of what happens. It's worth reading just part of this. Well, the woke liberal is described as walking over to the salesperson at one point and saying, excuse me, she said politely, I'm interested in a fuel-efficient car. Do you have any options in that regard? But later in the script, the right-wing Republican is described as well. Quote, The man in the MAGA hat sneered at Maria. Those things are for weaklings, he said dismissively. And at the end of the script, it's then said, The man in the MAGA hat stormed off in search of a bigger, louder vehicle to satisfy his need for attention. <laughs> so clearly, ChatGPT thinks of woke liberals as polite people, while right-wing Republicans wear MAGA hats and are rude. So, so that's, that's a little telling. It's a little telling of some kind of bias that, of course, tech people tend not to be too concerned about. And I commented on all of this. I just said, open AI will go broke with that attitude. And for anyone in the know, what I mean by that is Go woke, go broke is a common saying that is appearing now. So you have places like Disney who inserts woke ideology, certain postmodern ideas about gender or whatever else it happens to be, the particular denials of reality that are fashionable at the time. It keeps inserting these ideas not merely in their Star Wars universe, which the Star Wars fans don't particularly appreciate, but also into certain shows for children, which the parents don't tend to like. And so people are switching off. Uh, they're switching off for a number of reasons of, of Disney, but th those are two of them. And so the, you know, this is just one example of where go woke, go broke, lose customers if you go woke. You at least lose you know, something like 50% of people who disagree with that particular worldview. And in fact, the, I noticed the CEO of Disney came out recently and said... They were wrong to have done this. They're wrong to have taken this this weird woke turn and they're going to turn back. I saw an interview with, um, with words to that effect anyway. You know, whatever your political leanings, 
even as a company, you can, you're free to do whatever you want. But if part of the reason for doing what you do, especially if you're a publicly traded company, at least part of the reason is to make money for your shareholders, make good products, yes, uh, deliver a good service, yes, absolutely, they're your, your, your primary reason for existing, making the good product. Secondary, related to that, if you do make the good product, is to make a profit, make a return for your owner, for your shareholders. That is completely undermined if you take political stances on the right or the left, on the right or the left. Unless, of course, you are deliberately only going for one part of the market. One can imagine American gun manufacturers, you know, narrowly focused on trying to sell to conservatives. And there might be a market opening there for trying to sell to people who otherwise would never buy guns. But, you know, you can see there, I understand there are certain reasons for gearing your product towards a specific market. But if you're a huge corporation like Disney, where, where you know, in, in theory, you, you want to sell to everyone, you want to, you want to maximise your reach, taking a political stance on anything, bad idea. Lose a large portion of your customers. You know, don't express an opinion on what Joe Biden is doing. Don't express an opinion on what Donald Trump is doing. If you're a business person, if you want to make money for your shareholders, don't do this kind of thing. Don't engage in the fashionable ideologies of the day. Don't have an opinion on climate change. I mean, you can, of course you can. I'm not saying that that this is something that should be prohibited. No, I'm saying that if you want to maximise profits, it's just a rational thing to do. If I had a business, I wouldn't be coming out strongly against joining a religion, join, joining a mainstream religion, even though I think people shouldn't. <laughs> I don't think people necessarily should go out actively seeking to join mainstream religions, but I'm not going to say that because obviously that's a very minority opinion. I wouldn't want my, my business to be expressing religious views. It's going to turn people off. And for the same reason, expressing political views. I wouldn't want that. It's not part of what a business is about. It's about creating good products that everyone wants, no matter who they are. People are going to be turned off by you expressing an opinion. Okay, next next was a, a tweet uh, I constructed apropos of nothing. But it was just part of this, you know, thing I was doing and in, in tweeting more than normal. And uh, well, I won't read through the whole thing. It was this um, galaxy brain meme thing. And you know, I was saying that the small brain take is basically that uh, the possibility of AI is exciting because they make us better at doing mundane jobs. And then, as people become more educated, I was implying with my meme, they they become they tend to become more frightened about the possibility of AI. Because they think something like it's going to be better than us at all tasks and so it's eventually going to realise that we are in inferior life form and they're going to want to exterminate us, the artificial intelligence robots. You know, this is the, the doom that appears in all those science fiction movies that have AI, that eventually the AI turns on us thinking that, that we human beings have some deficiency that should be eradicated from the earth. Okay, so that's when people learn a little bit of knowledge, a little bit of knowledge making them dangerous, so to speak. But I think the galaxy brain take is is something like, well, what I said was, quote, the possibility of general AI is exciting because whenever we use technology, we are them. And we will become more moral as we learn more by doing so. End quote. So what I'm saying there is that 
the artificial general intelligence is us. We're, we're already using, we're already augmenting ourselves, including our minds with technology. So in a sense, we're already artificial intelligence compared to artificial general intelligence compared to, you know, Neolithic man, Paleolithic man, something like that, even Middle Ages man. And we're not going to become less moral and decide to turn on each other, so to speak. And anyone who isn't the artificial general intelligence, it's not like we're going to turn around and want to start exterminating people. So why should the artificial general intelligence want to exterminate us? Presumably they'll know science as well as we do and, and, and understand engineering as well as we do and all the stuff that it'll know better. Presumably it will know morality better than us as well. And morality, genuine morality, is the opposite to let's exterminate other people. Right. So as we learn more, we're going to become more moral, less likely to want to exterminate people. And I've also tweeted a... Uh, and Akira the Don song, which features Naval, Naval Ravikant, which is kind of a cool thing. You can download this. Let me just play a little bit at the risk of, um, well, I guess I can play 15 seconds or something, at the risk of violating copyright. Let me see. We have this idea that in the future, there's going to be these robots, and they're going to be doing everything. And that may be true, but I would say the majority of the robot revolution has already happened. The robots are already here, and there are way more robots than there are humans. It's just that we pack them in data centers for heat and efficiency reasons. Okay, so that's Naval talking about how the robot revolution is already here. Quite right, you know. Like, we, we, we are surrounded by robots. Most of them are in software doing the task of automating so much of our thinking for us. Not the creative part of our thinking, but the, the perspiration phase of our of our work. So, you know, me making a podcast, so much of it is the robot takes care of, you know, putting together the podcast to a large extent, making things easier for me. So there's that. And there's also, you know, the, the, the robots that are on Twitter, the, 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 you know, the bots that tweet stuff that Elon's trying to get rid of, all those sorts of things that that is very much here. And as Naval kind of hints at in the rest of the, well, the song there, but in the original podcast that he talks about, this is not a bad thing. This is a good thing. We should be optimistic about this. Now, a lot of people have um, did respond to my little tweet thing there, my little meme thing there about how we're becoming the, the AGI anyway, the general intelligence. David Hearn always has something interesting to say, and he has said it will be interesting to see if AGI thinks it is superior given it's a normal person. And I just said in response... Uh, well, it's not necessarily going to think it's superior any more than a normal person, <laughs> a human being, would, given it is a normal person. You know, if, if it's a normal person, it's not going to think it's superior, except at the same rate that any other person thinks that they're superior. So, yeah. Uh, next tweet, Grant Lewis from the University of Sydney has responded to this idea <laughs> that caused a lot of attention. People having visceral emotional reactions to this this article. And the article was about how <laughs> some researchers claimed and, and popular science articles wrote that quantum teleportation opens up a wormhole in space-time. <laughs> and some prominent physicists online seem to get very upset about this. Okay, <laughs> isn't it just funny? Like, don't, can't you just laugh when science communicators make an error or researchers make a clangor like this? It's Clearly clickbait. Clickbait's been going on online for a long time. Yeah, I think it's sad. It's unfortunate for science communication. I think it's a phase we're going through, by the way. Eventually, people will begin to realise when the scientific content is clickbait and when it's not. 
But it happens in astronomy far more often than not. Uh, I don't like it myself. You know, every second astronomy story is about, you know, have aliens been found, you know, has Kepler finally found the, has, you know, the, the probes on Mars finally found evidence of life? And the answer is always no. They could just talk about the science itself, which is interesting enough without invoking aliens every time. You can talk about experiments in quantum theory that are interesting without jumping to its teleportation and it's a wormhole, okay? But but this is what happens now. We have to accept that this is the culture we're swimming in when it comes to science communication. Why certain physicists are getting upset, having an emotional reaction, I don't know. Grant Lewis has said quite soberly, quite right, quote, did they really open up a wormhole in space-time physics world? Did they really? Okay, so yeah, he's just asking the question, is this really what's going on? Uh, gently chastising them for for hyperbole, we might say, even for being misleading, even for lying, okay, without getting angry about it. And Luke Barnes has responded, <laughs> and I thought this was hilarious, and I just responded to him, I just said, brilliant. He said, when, you know, in response to the claim that this wormhole had been opened in space-time, big deal, a small invertebrate opens up a wormhole in my garden every day, <laughs> which is perfect, that's perfect. Uh, now, someone responded again to my thread on artificial general intelligence saying, quotes, now this, this fellow's name is Rob, and Rob has said, airplanes fly faster than birds, submarines swim more efficiently than fish, and artificial intelligence will reach a stage thereby comparing its thinking to ours would be like comparing a cheetah to a race car. And I've said, quoting Einstein, my pencil and I are smarter than I am. And then I went on to say, replace pencil with literally any technology. I can multiply any two numbers together that any computer can, or win any chess game against any grandmaster. Just give me a computer that can do so. Okay, end quote. So, yeah, my point there is that, again, we're already the artificial general intelligence. We are using the technology. The technology is dumb. It doesn't make decisions for itself. We choose what to do with the artificial intelligence that's already out there. It is not akin to an airplane flying faster than a bird. That is a comparison of the physical against the physical. What we're talking about is an abstract quality of creativity, which is not a physical phenomenon. It's not made of atoms. And at the moment, we outstrip any AI that's out there because the AI has creativity possibilities of zero. Uh, we have a creative capacity that the AI lacks. The difference is a, it's a universe of difference, really. But if thinking faster is the factor, well, again, pocket calculator helps me to think faster and to compute numbers faster. My laptop enables me to think faster, to do the tasks faster. It's not doing it. I'm doing it by virtue of using it. It's like saying, oh, the hammer's the thing that puts the nails in, not me, you know, when I'm hammering something in. No, it's me putting the nail into the wood. If I'm using a hammer, the hammer is just an extension of my body effectively at that point. Now, in, in my thread, I made the claim that we will become more moral. Um, someone called Snowshi has quoted me and said, this doesn't sit well with me. So what doesn't sit well with them? My claim that we will become more moral. And I said, quote, morality like science is a species of knowledge, but ultimately knowledge is a unified whole as there is only one reality. Knowledge is a model of that reality. As we improve in science and technology, we necessarily improve our moral knowledge. So we become more moral. 
And I went on, Our knowledge of history is a record not merely of scientific progress. It is also evidence of moral progress. That is the best explanation of how he escaped many tribal moral errors. The explanation of that history applies equally to our present and future. And Snowshi has said, Thank you for explaining. I'll have to think about this framing. How do you determine what is a moral error? And I said, as with anything else, by comparison to a better explanation. And they've said, I still don't understand how you know it's better, to which I haven't yet responded. Maybe I can do that here. It's, it's, it's in the same way that we know anything else is better when it comes to a good explanation. By surviving refutations, by surviving the critical process, and when we throw criticisms at something, like, for example, uh, let's say communism. We, we say it's a, it's, a, it's a coercive system that when it's actually attempted to instantiate itself in the world, it's called the, un, caused the, the, you know, the, the large number of deaths of, of people. It's just an ideology which, has a, which is completely destitute when it comes to helping people economically and creating the conditions for people to flourish. Okay? There's, there's a whole bunch of reasons in, and ways in which we can critique something like communism. We can say it's a bad moral theory, a bad economic theory, a bad way of organising society. How do I know free trade is better than that? Well, look at the effects in the world. But also notice that there is a strict difference between the presence of coercion and its absence. And so when it comes to moral theories, that kind of thing is a good heuristic. You know, does this thing require coercion or not? Does this thing destroy the means of error correction or not? Okay, these are heuristics we can use to critique different moral theories. And that's how we know, that's how we can rank order our moral theories and come up with a best current moral theory on any particular topic. Sometimes it'll just be for you. Sometimes it will be for civilization. In science, of course, we have the scientific experiment, which can decide between two good theories. Sometimes we don't have that. We don't have that in, in mathematics. We have proofs to decide between conjectures. And in the rest of our knowledge claims, we have argument. And it's, just, it's the argument that wins. The argument that is a critical argument that that, that says of its rivals, you know, you're wrong for these reasons. And if there's no response to that, well, then we know that we have the, the best explanation in, in any given field. In fact, that also works in science, by the way. You know, the, the, the best argument, the best explanation wins the day. Uh, the experimental test is just a part of that. Uh, next tweet, I've responded to Arjun, Arjun Kamani, who is one of the the prominent rising content creators in this world of ideas that we have online. Arjun's still at school, but uh, trying to escape, which is uh, good for him. And he uh, has, uh, as I understand it, um, beginning to achieve gainful employment in areas that he's finding fun. So this is fantastic. Uh, a great example to to, to all, any school student. And he interviewed a fellow called Michael Strong on, well, Co coercion and, and, and you know school and you know making forcing people to do what they don't want to do and I just responded to a clip from his podcast that Arjun had posted I said uh, as a school student myself about age 14 I vividly remember the day I thought to myself this is like a prison only no one has committed any crime from that moment onwards I was TCS without having the vocabulary to describe it yet uh, and TCS just means taking children seriously. And someone has responded to me, Anaket has responded to me. He said, quote, In my experience, there was always a subset of folks who really liked being there. Characteristically, 
These were the ones who were really good at remembering facts and were the ones always stood one or two ranked in the class. I wonder where they are in life right now. <laughs> and I've responded to that. Strangely, perhaps that was me. <laughs> I loved school much of the time, not all of the time, but I simultaneously hated the idea of it and saw most people did not seem to benefit. In year 10, I remember honestly debating my position against kids who hated school but thought it necessary, end quote. And in fact, I, I can tell a story now that the teacher actually set up a debate one time. Uh, it was in science class of all, of all places. And we actually debated the proposition that, you know, we should be forced to go to school. And I took the side of the side that I genuinely believed in. I, I think maybe the topic came up because I'd this science teacher was quite good, uh, was, you know, in terms of willing to listen to people's opinions. And I think I expressed the opinion that we shouldn't be forced to go to school. And I think he was surprised by this because I was the, you know, ostensibly the nerd of the class, you know, I'd always have something to say. And I was always studying hard in science. I love science. But, but you know, so I took the position that we shouldn't be forced to be there. And almost the entire rest of the class was against me. I was the one who was doing best in the class saying we shouldn't be there. And the others, including some of whom were really struggling and didn't like science at all, thought they should be there. Bizarre thing. And so I've known ever since then, and even as a teacher myself, that some of the strongest pushback you'll get to this argument that school shouldn't be compulsory is from school students themselves at school. Uh, it only gets worse after that, by the way. Of course, there are a lot of school students at school who would love not to have to go to school. A lot of the, lot of the, the cleverest ones, a lot of the ones that are in the top classes, yeah, they're the ones that, that do tend to say, oh, we should all be here because they, they like to win. They like to be the top of the class. Others don't want to be forced to go there, but there's a surprising number that do, that do think everyone should be forced to go to school. And of course, once everyone graduates, then almost everyone universally thinks that everyone should go to school, especially their own children. Everyone looks back on their time at school, no matter how bad it is, or was, with rose-coloured glasses. This, this is a, an almost universal phenomenon I've found. I guess because perhaps, perhaps, their life later on isn't very good, you know. <laughs> um, people say, oh, school days are some of the best times of your life. No, they're not. No, no, things get better. Things, things do tend to get better. Uh, you're, you're just remembering the fun you had with your friends at school. You're not remembering all the tough times in the classroom and, and not having the freedom to do what you wanted to do. You're not remembering that. Those weren't fun. Recess and lunchtime, those few minutes of the day where you had lots of fun with all of your friends there, that was the exception to the rule. But people forget this. They do forget this. Uh, they remember the weekends. They remember the sport. They remember after school. I don't remember school very well. Uh, next, Annika Harris, Sam Harris's uh, wife. Uh, she followed me. She followed me on Twitter. Uh, and she tweeted, quote, Science doesn't stamp out mystery. It leads to greater mysteries. To which someone has responded, Surprised people still think free will is a coherent concept after watching this video. And he has linked to Sam Harris's free will lecture. So somewhat, a little provocatively, I have responded to this fellow saying, surprised people still think it isn't, namely a coherent concept, after watching this. And I've linked to my own YouTube <laughs> response to Sam Harris on this. But again, another another pleasant interaction with people. I'm not, you know, talking about 
having negative reactions on Twitter. I'm, I'm just not seeing it, not seeing it. And yeah, sure, my experience is not generalizable. That some people do have negative experiences. But what's my point? My point is that therefore Twitter itself is not at fault. It's not like Twitter itself is a cesspool, as I often hear. Sometimes I describe it in the same way that Ricky Gervais has, as a little bit like the writing on the back of a toilet wall. But, you know, as much as there's graffiti on the back of toilet walls, sometimes there's actually quite witty remarks being made there as well. I've seen toilet walls that actually have science equations written on them. You know, this kind of thing happens. So, yeah, although the overwhelming majority of tweets out there might be uh, almost contentless or insulting or troll-like or the work of bots, okay, it's not the majority, but even if it was, well, you can find communities and ways of interacting with people that can cause you to avoid that experience, the experience of the so-called cesspool, the negative experience that prominent people say they're having uh, as a rule on Twitter. Okay, next. Um, uh, someone by the name of Professor Quack <laughs> has responded to a tweet I'd made earlier, which is where in the tweet I said that OpenAI Karl Popper gets Everettian quantum theory and concedes... It's testable because I went to chat GPT. I went to the bot and I put in the prompt, quote, David Deutsch invents a time machine and goes back in time to speak to Karl Popper again about the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics. Karl Popper is finally persuaded David is correct and promises to include this fact and the reasons why in his autobiography. This is a transcript of their conversation. And, you know, giving that instruction to the program, it produces a transcript of their conversation. And it's funny, and you can go to Twitter and have a read of that if you like. Now, the reason I chose that is because David Deutsch said, you know, he's recounted a couple of times, the meeting he actually had with Karl Popper himself. And during that meeting with his supervisor, they tried to persuade Karl Popper that he was wrong. He, Karl Popper, was wrong about his understanding of quantum mechanics. And they tried to persuade him of the Everettian interpretation of the multiverse. And apparently he was persuaded and said that he would include uh, something in his upcoming book that touched on this, but he never did, um, for reasons that David doesn't know. But anyway, this interaction really did happen in the past, and so I'm just imagining, wonder what it would be like if it actually could happen again at some point in the future, in the future past, so to speak. Anyway, uh, Professor Quack said that in the interaction, that Karl Popper was way too easily convinced. He, did, he didn't buy it. He didn't buy what the computer was saying in, in the script. But I responded to Professor Quack and said, quote, he'd already been convinced once in actual history. So in this imaginary future history, the groundwork has already been done. Should be rather easier. End quote. So, yeah, what I'm saying there is that, well, Karl Popper, he already had heard about the Everettian interpretation, he was already persuaded by it. No doubt he simply forgot he had this conversation with David Deutsch. If he was reminded subtly, and if David had the chance to ever speak to him again, uh, maybe the reinforcement of the knowledge would be enough for him to be truly persuaded this time, which is to say, understand and incorporate 
the ever-ending interpretation as part of his background knowledge. And then his philosophy would be all the more richer for it. But that it isn't, the world hasn't lost too much because, after all, David Deutsch has come along and tidied up the mess, so to speak, <laughs> for what it is. Wouldn't really say mess, but, you know, tidied up the loose ends that Karl Popper left behind in his not understanding Everettian and quantum theory, or just quantum theory, <laughs> full stop. Next, Aniket has responded to me uh, about an, another previous tweet. In fact, same tweet. He, he, he responded and said that, incidentally, I wrote this prompt just now, which was write a dialogue between Karl Popper and David Deutsch. So that's what Aniket gave to ChatGPT, which is an interesting conversation. And I responded with yet another dialogue that I put in and the prompt I used this time was David Deutsch explains his concept of good explanations as being hard to vary to Karl Popper. And I wanted to see what the computer would say about that. These are kind of fun because it's like, I don't know, you, 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 you feel like it's an alternative history. Of course, it's completely fictional, but you are surprised to some extent to some extent. But that level of surprise you have putting prompts in to chat GPT, it has a very short half-life because you don't have to explore it for long along the same lines and it begins to repeat itself. The apparent creativity is revealed to be not genuine creativity because it's not imagining anything new. It's just giving you the same thing over and over again. Ask a person to invent a fictional story and they can come up with, in theory, infinite different stories, infinite different versions of the same story. But the chat GPT doesn't quite do that. It doesn't have the capacity to do that. It's drawing on pre-existing information. It's mashing that pre-existing information together and to give the appearance of creativity. The appearance of creativity is not creativity in the same way the appearance of design is not design. Rather like how, you know, evolution by natural selection gives you the appearance of there being a watchmaker or a blind watchmaker. But there is no such watchmaker. There is no intelligence behind it all. What's really going on is random mutations and selection. There's no consciousness there. There's no designer there, blind or otherwise. There is simply the outworkings of, well, effectively the laws of physics, the laws of physics as they appear uh, to act upon genes, upon DNA. And in the same way, we've got this chat GPT thing. And even if I can't explain it at length, in detail, precisely what it's doing, step by step, because of course, the algorithm is going to be highly complex. It's going to be very smart programmers, coders doing this. And, and perhaps even them, you know, this team of programmers that come together, when they all do come together and they, they, they put their code together and it, 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 it's able to do this thing, even if they can't explain it, that does not mean, that does not mean, even if no one can give a good account of how it's achieving what it's achieving, that therefore it's being creative. It simply means we lack an explanation. But we can rule out certain things. We can rule out the fact that it is being genuinely creative because it's not producing any new knowledge. It's mashing together pre-existing knowledge, perhaps in ways that defy explanation for the moment. Not defy explanation in principle, after all problems are soluble, but might defy us able to explain why it's doing what it's doing. Which I don't, you know, I don't mind having that stance about things that we invent ourselves. We can invent stuff and yet not know how it achieves what it achieves. Anyone can invent a double pendulum, for example. 
You can build a double pendulum, but if you try and describe the behavior of that double pendulum, good luck unless you have a good understanding of, you know, second order differential equations or something like that. Um, you know, the, the relevant physics, complex behavior is produced by a pendulum, in fact, even a simple pendulum. If you don't have understanding of simple physics, you can't explain why it does what it does. But you've built the thing, you might have built a pendulum, but you might not simultaneously be able to explain how it does what it does. So too with ChatGPT. In either case, just because you've built this thing and you can't explain it, do you leap to, therefore there's something truly mysterious going on here? There's creativity there in the same way that people have creativity? No, no, that, that is the, the wrong way to go. You might not be able to explain something, but also you can rule out certain explanations as not being valid. And that's what I would say about ChatGPT even if people can't explain it, even if the programmers themselves can't explain it. And I've made this point before when it comes to AlphaGo, you know, the computers that, that win at Go or win at chess and the programmers say to themselves, we don't know how it's doing what it's doing. We don't know how it came up with that move. We can't explain it. Well, okay, some people want to leap to, well, therefore there's an intelligence there, therefore there's consciousness there because you know, the programmers themselves don't know how it's doing what it's doing. Well, okay, if you don't know how it's doing what it's doing, that's where your conversation should stop with respect to that. You just say you don't know. You don't leap to, therefore it's intelligent. <laughs> Wrong. Neil deGrasse Tyson says precisely the same thing. You see a photograph of something, you don't know what it is, from the sky, you go, a UFO. You don't leap from, oh, it's unidentified, I don't know what it is, to, therefore it's aliens visiting from the other side of the galaxy. That is an invalid move. Exactly the same is true here of ChatGPT or whatever else. Just because the majority of people can't explain what it's doing doesn't mean that it's got intelligence, consciousness lurking there in the background that is the best explanation of what's going on. That's the worst explanation of what's going on. Well, no, not the worst, but it is a bad explanation of what's going on because I would say it's refuted ruled out by what we know about actual intelligence and actual creativity and actual consciousness and the ability to generate explanations, which is what we have. We don't know everything about it. We can't program it ourselves, but we know what kind of features it has. It can construct new knowledge, which is not what's going on with ChatGPT. Okay, I've made enough of a point on that. What I also said in response to Aniket was, with respect to ChatGPT, I said on Twitter, quote, it's become a little bit of a fast talker, glossing over key points, getting some keywords in there, but never really explaining what cries out for explanation, end quote. So yeah, when I've asked ChatGPT to construct a dialogue between David Deutsch and Karl Popper, where David uh, explains what good explanations are to Karl Popper, you read through the dialogue and it's just throwing words together. You can see there's no depth there. Like it begins strong. It, it, it attributes to David the following. It says, quote, Well, a good explanation is one that is hard to vary without losing its explanatory power. In other words, it's an explanation that can't be easily changed or altered without losing its ability to explain the phenomenon in question. End quote. Okay, that's good. That's good. But I would want to know, and any reasonable person would say, okay, what do you mean easily change to alter? Okay, that's hard to vary. Good. Without losing its ability to explain the phenomenon in question. Okay, good. But it never really gets to the heart of things. It goes on. Karl Popper, you know, the character Karl Popper in this dialogue, asks a question. And David says, quote, 
the character, David, <laughs> says, quote, In quantum mechanics, the many worlds interpretation provides a good explanation for the strange behaviour of subatomic particles. It's a hard to vary explanation because it makes specific predictions about the behaviour of quantum systems that are difficult to change without losing their explanatory power. So, end quote. So it, it's repeated itself there. Okay. What about it is hard to... What makes an explanation hard to vary? Well, it's difficult to change without losing explanatory power. That's circular. That's not really telling you what hard to vary means. So it's getting into a circular bit of reasoning. It's not representing David Deutsch at all well. It's not representing a creative understanding of this stuff at all well. It's coming up with a synonym for hard to vary. And it's saying, well, here's my explanation of hard to vary. Hard to vary means difficult to change. <laughs> difficult to change when it comes to explanations without losing its explanatory power. That's just another way of saying what a hard to vary explanation is. Difficult to change without losing its explanatory power. It's not telling you, it's not explaining one in terms of the other. It's just giving you two synonymous ways of stating exactly the same concept. That's not a deeper explanation of explanations at all. <laughs> okay, let's not, let's not linger on that any further. Uh, moving on, I tweeted about the Jocko podcast. The Jocko podcast. Uh, one of my favourite podcasts, and he interviewed Tulsi Gabbard, the Democrat presidential candidate from a few years ago, who quit the Democrat Party. Uh, she had disagreements with it. And I said about this, I just tweeted out, I said, great episode, quibble with Jocko Willink at the 19-minute mark, because not all learning is like brainwashing. Broadly, the former, learning, requires a human to deploy their critical faculties to construct knowledge. The latter, brainwashing, requires those same faculties to be disabled, end quote. So uh, Jocko in that interview, it's wonderful. Jocko sometimes gets onto epistemology, interestingly enough. And broadly speaking, he has the common sense and correct view about epistemology. But in this particular case, he, he, he went off the rails a little bit. He was talking about how people are brainwashed, for example, in the military. And I think he's quite right to say that. Military indoctrination is a form of brainwashing. Quite right. Okay. Stop thinking critically about this thing. Just do it. If you're ordered to do something, just do it. In other moods, of course, Jocko says, good military leaders and indeed good soldiers don't just do what they're commanded or ordered to do. They should be thinking about what they're doing. Now, that's what a good soldier should be or what a good military leader should be. But of course, the entire impetus of military training to a large extent is to indoctrinate out of you the concept that you should think for yourself. You are supposed to do precisely what the, the, the whole concept of an order is. You, you don't think about it. You follow the order and you do what you're told to do. Now, is this ideal? Of course it's not. Of course it's not. But when it comes to having people give up their lives for something, you know, fight to the death over something, the best way that we know presently about how to get young people to do this kind of thing is to indoctrinate them, is to brainwash them. That, that's just a fact of the matter. World War One, when you had people in trenches needing to, quote, go over the top in trench warfare especially in places where, you know, for example, the, the, the Allies were fighting against the Turks, let's say, the Turks and the Germans. Then in trench warfare, the, you know, the, the British commanders would, would blow the whistle and then the soldiers would leap up out of the trenches and go running towards the enemy who were also in trenches and who would mow them down, either with rifles or even machine guns. Now, how do you get people 
to do this, to, to, to leap out of the trench, knowing full well there's every chance they're going to be killed. Well, they have to be brainwashed to some extent. The military training has to be very, for want of another word, good. You have to be, you have to be trained out of your desire to survive. That's got to be hard to do. That's, that's going to be very hard to do without brainwashing, without switching off a person's critical faculties, without indoctrinating them with a certain kind of anti-rational meme. So anyway... I think Jocko knows all this, but uh, just to say that he was speaking a little bit loosely there uh, in this particular interview where he was talking with Tulsi Gabbard about the experience of being in the military and learning stuff in the military and sort of saying, well, he, he was basically saying, whenever you're learning, it's a form of brainwashing. And I disagree with that. I think these are two different things. I think that learning is a broader category of stuff and brainwashing is a particular kind of learning, a particular kind of learning which causes one to take on anti-rational memes, causes one to not use their reason, to disable those critical faculties, but nonetheless to be compelled to engage in particular behaviours because they've learned how to do these particular behaviours in an unthinking kind of a way, which is what you know military leaders want of especially their soldiers. They want them to just follow orders without thinking about it. That's not ideal. It would be far better if a military consisted entirely of thinking people who simply agreed with the instructions they were given. And I think more and more that's becoming the norm, certainly in the West, because the soldier will believe in the cause and come to a critical understanding of why they're doing what they're doing for reasons of service and so on, rather than simply, I better obey the orders. Or if you listen to Jocko for long enough or anyone who's in the military today, they will say the reason why they're fighting is for the people alongside of them. They're, they're, they're actually doing this for their friends, their brothers that are engaged in the war, engaged in the battle. That, that's why they're doing what they're doing. They're fighting so that the people beside them will survive. And the best plan is to fight as hard as possible, defeat the enemy. So in that way, everyone comes home. You know, they've saved their friends. Okay, so uh, in response to that tweet, a fellow named Glimpse has said, Jocko Podcast is awesome. What are your favourite podcasts, Brett? And I've said, quote, in order of most played recently, not preference, which are not one-off listens, and then I've given my list. So I listen to a lot of podcasts. I take a lot of walks. Uh, whenever I'm travelling, I will be listening to podcasts, I'll be listening to audio, sometimes audio books, but increasingly podcasts. And sometimes I'll listen to just a one-off episode. So I'll, someone, I'll learn about a particular podcast, the existence of a particular podcast, and I'll think, oh, I'll just give that a go. I'll listen to one episode. Or a particular person appears on a particular podcast that I otherwise wouldn't listen to, but I'll just tune in for that one episode where that one guest appears on that particular podcast. You know, if David Deutsch goes and appears on someone's podcast... Of course, I'll listen to it, but I might never listen to any of their other episodes. So my favourite, in scare quotes, podcasts, by which I really mean ones I've listened to most recently, the ones that I've uh, that appeared on my Apple Podcasts app, <laughs> that tell me that these are the ones I've been listening to recently. Uh, they are, in no particular order, uh, Jocko's podcast, The Mogcast. Uh, this is with... Jacob Rees-Mogg, who is a British politician, very eloquent, well-spoken, conservative politician. Uh, 
He's, he's out of... Now, the British have this interesting system where if you're not... If you're in the party that's in power, now at the moment, of course, in, in British politics, the Conservatives are in power. So Jacob Rees-Mogg is part of the Conservative Party. But he also says he's not part of the government. If you're on the back bench in British politics, then even if you're a member of the party that's in power, you don't regard yourself as being in government. It's a curious thing. So it's a subtly different to the way it works in Australia. So Jacob Rees-Mogg, when he appeared on his own podcasts with the interviewer, when he was actually in government as leader of the House, so he was a government minister, he was reticent to really speak freely on his own podcast. But now that he's a backbencher, even though his party's still in power, he speaks much more freely. It's a more interesting podcast because he says what he really thinks. <laughs> Whereas um, he says that when he's actually in the government, he's bound by collective responsibility. So whatever the, you know, the, the cabinet's view ha happens to be, the government's view happens to be, he would not be able to give his own view. This is unlike in Australia. In Australia, the backbenchers are a part of the government, as far as I'm aware. I've never heard of anyone on the backbench who belongs to the party in power saying they're not in government. No, they say they're in government. The entire side of politics at the moment, the Labor Party is in government, in power. And it doesn't matter whether you're the prime minister or a minister or an assistant minister or, you know, anyone on that side of politics. You're part of the government. They're all part of the government, backbenchers or not. Okay, so anyway, <laughs> off topic, side issue. The Mogcast is something that I listen to. I just like listening to... To him, it gives me a good sense of where British politics is at any given time. After that, the Making Sense podcast, of course, with Sam Harris. The Brendan O'Neill show. Brendan O'Neill, if you don't know him, he's not on Twitter. He's an interesting fellow. He's on every other social media, though, and he's quite <laughs> vociferous. He's one of the interesting, curious fellows that... You know, he, 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 he's all over social media, except Twitter, which he says he doesn't like. But I don't see how being on Instagram, which he is, is much different to being on Twitter. You know, the, the comments still come through thick and fast. If you can ignore the comments on Instagram and Facebook, why can't you ignore the replies on Twitter? I don't know. Maybe the little bell icon has a psychological effect on people. So anyway, the Brendan O'Neill show is very good. Brendan O'Neill is the editor of Spiked Magazine, which also has a separate podcast altogether. Uh, I, I tend not to listen to that one as often, but I listen to Brendan O'Neill's show uh, almost every episode. He has interesting guests. Uh, and again, he's one of these well-spoken fellows who says interesting things like he's a Marxist, but, but these days, you know, you listen to him and he's got all, he's got all free market values and very much values of liberty which stand in stark contrast to marx but he he of course famously says <laughs> he likes marx in the same way that people talk about you know the rolling stones he likes their earlier stuff <laughs> he likes marx's early stuff <laughs> rather than the late stuff okay so that's brendan o'neill the tim ferris show uh, this is one of naval ravikant's recommendations uh and tim ferris has had Many interesting guests over time. Naval Ravikant, of course, is one. Uh, Jocko, uh, I think his first appearance was actually on the Tim Ferriss show. I think Tim Ferriss is a, a good friend of Joe Rogan. Uh, now, I haven't included Joe Rogan there in amongst my list here now that I read through it again. And that's because Joe Rogan is on Spotify. 
So because he's on Spotify, he's not appearing in my Apple Podcasts list. Uh, so next, apart from Tim Ferriss, is Spectator Out Loud. They have a podcast. This is the British version of The Spectator. Again, a good roundup of not merely British politics, but global politics. Smartless. Smartless is a comedy podcast where the three interviewers who are celebrities, American celebrities, uh, interview other celebrities. Okay, So this is a lighthearted kind of a thing. Not my favorite comedy podcast. There are two that, are, that I would hold out equally in terms of my favorite comedy podcast. The first one is Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend. And that's Conan O'Brien's podcast. I like Conan O'Brien in terms of all the late night hosts. I think Conan O'Brien is just head and shoulders above uh, the other guys. Now, of course, his, his show has long since finished now. Um, he, he doesn't do it anymore, but he does a podcast. And uh, I just find it you know, hilarious in places. He has interesting guests. And he also does this thing, Conan O'Brien Needs a Fan, which is like a, a supplementary Every, every couple of episodes, it's Conan O'Brien and Needs a Fan is literally that. They will call up one of their fans, who no doubt has written in uh, from around the world, and he has a you know, usually quite funny conversation with them. The rest of the episodes are, typically speaking, other comedians, Conan's friends or guests that he's had on his show. Yes, it's celebrity talk, it's superficial type stuff, but uh, funny. You know, I think Conan O'Brien is a... Like I say, head and shoulders above a lot of those other comedians that, that tend to have shows and podcasts. For one thing, he leaves the politics out of it. You can tell, okay, Conan O'Brien comes from a particular side of politics, um, but it doesn't infect the show. It doesn't undermine how funny the show is. You can, you can ignore his politics very easily. Next is a highly political <laughs> comedian, uh, and that is the Tim Dillon Show. Tim Dillon has the biggest podcast on Patreon, a uh, huge number of followers, um, very funny guy. Um, he's at his best when he doesn't do interviews. When he does interviews, I don't find him all that interesting. When it's just him ranting at the camera, hilarious. Uh, some episodes are better than others. I do tend to listen to him religiously. His show comes out, well, in Australia, it comes out on the Sunday, every Sunday, uh, I guess in America that would be the Saturday. But Tim Dillon is just an unusual fellow. Um, I, I suppose it's an acquired sense of humour, Tim Dillon. <laughs> uh, but he's one of Joe Rogan's favourite comedians as well. And of course, I, I disagree vehemently with a lot of what Tim Dillon has to say politically, but he just has a, a wonderful way of taking things to the absolute extreme. And so it becomes absurdist. And I quite like that. Ben Shapiro is in my list there. The Iran Brooks show is in my list. And lastly, an Australian comedy show called Sizzletown. And Sizzletown is, oh, it's hard to explain. It's by an Australian comedian, Australian New Zealand comedian, very famous in Australia. His name's Tony Martin, uh, one of our greatest comedians. But again, uh, difficult to recommend to people from overseas, but it's Tony Martin. The premise is... Unusually for a podcast, Tony Martin pretending to do talkback radio, in fact, pretending to do talkback podcasting, where he is all the guests that ring in to himself. He plays, he does character voices. So it's, it's very funny if you, 
you, if you know Australian humour, and it's the hard part for recommending it to anyone, because so much of it rests on understanding Australian culture. <laughs> yes, but uh, but I quite like that one. And of course, honourable mention. The only reason it doesn't appear in my original list is because I hadn't caught up with the latest episode, and that is the Arjun Kamani podcast. So I didn't include him, and he deserves very much to be there. Arjun Kamani has some wonderful guests, but I tend to listen primarily for Arjun, who has interesting takes on the stuff I generally talk about. But he comes from a, well, he's, he's, a, he's a much younger person who, who has his unique own insights on these things. And he's coming with a fresh mind, often to the stuff that I talk about. So I, I quite appreciate that. Next tweet. So moving on from my favorite podcasts. Someone responds uh, to one of my other tweets with their own <laughs> chat GPT uh, dialogue where they've, they've, uh, they've <laughs> the, the prompt they've put in <laughs> is to do with me, Brett Hall, arguing about the validity of Bayesian reasoning. And in the dialogue, I come off as rather dogmatic and unwilling to say anything positive about so-called Bayesian reasoning. I won't read through the dialogue, but instead my response to the dialogue on Twitter was to say, quote, I think I'm more on the side of the other person than Brett in that exchange. So <laughs> I actually didn't agree with the way I was being represented. And in fact, I, I would have taken the other side of the argument for a lot of this. My next tweet was me retweeting David Deutsch, who had engaged with ChatGPT. On, uh, he, and he, he gave it some prompts about writing a poem about electrons. So have a look at David's Twitter feed for that. I then retweeted Elon Musk. Elon Musk said, quote, Twitter acting by itself to suppress free speech is not a First Amendment violation, but acting under orders from the government to suppress free speech with no judicial review is, end quote. And quite right. A lot of us have been talking about this, that, you know, companies are free to say what they like. People are free to say what they like. But in America, the First Amendment to the Constitution about government not passing laws about speech, well, that includes politicians threatening or, or being perceived to threaten private individuals and companies about what they can say for fear, especially when it comes to companies, that if the company doesn't follow the edicts or the strong insinuations, let's say, of what the politician is implying, that perhaps legislation will be passed, perhaps a regulation will be generated that might not be, let's say, all that beneficial should it come to pass for that particular company. So although the politician and the government might not be passing laws, nonetheless, on behalf of the government or the politicians in the government, Companies end up regulating speech. Let's say Twitter ends up regulating speech, censoring people for fear the politicians might regulate the company in some way without ever specifying what the speech is, without ever saying, you know, we don't want this particular speech on your platform, or we do want this particular speech on your platform. We want you to suppress the Hunter Biden laptop story. We don't want you to suppress the, the negative stories about Trump. That kind of thing. They don't have to say that explicitly. They can kind of have emails exchanged with executives and workers at Twitter. And the executives and workers at Twitter can know 
that if they don't do what they're told, then perhaps there might be some regulation made about something to do with Twitter's business. So although the, the government's not specifically making a regulation about speech, that's a violation of the First Amendment. It's at least a violation of the spirit of the Constitution. Moving on, and I'm just going to skip past a couple here because uh, uh, I don't want to repeat myself. But one thing is uh, tweeted about Jordan Peterson in conversation with Matt Ridley, who's a, a British intellectual, British intellectual. Maybe I'll be able to hear some thunder from outside my house. And I said of this conversation they had, this is uh, Jordan Peterson's podcast number 310, episode 310, I said of it, sober and very detailed scientific and political analysis on what was and now is known and unknown by Matt Ridley in conversation with Jordan Peterson about COVID-19. And so that, I found that very illuminating. I know we're all got COVID weariness to some extent now, but in this particular case, I found it still informative. There, there were parts of this story I didn't know about people saying that it couldn't possibly have come from a lab and there was definitely some sort of coordinated attempt by the media and certain experts to suppress that theory. Why? Well, yeah, watch the episode to find out more. It doesn't need to be a big grand conspiracy. It can, it can just be people acting on the side of their particular side of politics. Everyone knows without saying anything, without getting together in a, in a cigar smoke filled room, what needs to be done. They don't have to be given orders as such. There's a particular ideology that compels them to behave in a certain way. That might not be conspiratorial. That can just be everyone agrees. Again, anti-rational memes might come into this. Uh, next tweet. And I guess one of the reasons I'm, I'm doing this right now is, is, is to, to illustrate why I have the pattern of tweeting that I sometimes do. Because amidst all those other tweets, I threw in... Uh, my latest episode of TopCast. The latest episode of TopCast is Knowledge and Ignorance, which is more commentary on pieces by Popper, in particular on the sources of knowledge and of ignorance. That lecture that I'm going through, I'm up to part five now. So th this is really you know, the central part of my work, so to speak. This is the thing I've put most effort into. Uh, and whereas the odd tweet of mine might get you know, 15 likes and, you know, five or six retweets or, you know, in some cases, hundreds of likes and lots of retweets if, if, if someone of prominence retweets a thing. This one, <laughs> which I kind of hoped would get a bit more love, uh, you know, it gets nine likes and one retweet. So uh, that's unfortunate. <laughs> that's unfortunate because, you know, this is the thing that I've spent most of my time doing is carefully reading through Popper's lecture, analysing it, going to some sources that Popper himself talked about, uh, reading through those, analysing those. Um, but I don't think many people saw this tweet. And the reason not many people saw this tweet is because it was sandwiched between a whole bunch of other tweets. So this is why I shouldn't tweet this frequently. There's a reason uh, for the pattern that I have <laughs> on Twitter. Uh, to leave to leave some space either side of the important stuff. The important stuff is letting people know that I've got another podcast out. I want people to be able to hear Popper, hear me reading through Popper. Anyway, in part of this particular thing, part of this particular episode, I talk about how 
Karl Popper and the art historian, Austrian art historian, his name's Gombrich. Now, Gombrich wrote about John Constable, who's a British artist, and Constable would say that his painting is kind of like doing scientific experiments. And anyway, I, I, I didn't go into, but it, but it seemed like, it seemed to me as if Gombrich and Popper must have been friends, just without doing any research, because of the way Popper was writing about Gombrich. And you go to Gombrich's book that Popper quoted, and there's quotes by Popper. So they're quoting each other, they're referring to each other. This is interesting, they're contemporaries of each other. So <laughs> interesting that you know, they're referring to each other. Did they know each other? Well, um, a follower of mine, Ernst, who's a, who's a musician in Sweden, Ernst Lanson, and he said, in response to my podcast, he listened to the whole thing. Thank you, Ernst. He said, quote, Gombrich and Popper were friends. I think Popper writes about him helping Popper with publishing Open Society and its enemies in a preface of some edition. As for Popperian art critics, Dorian K. Brandy is great. He's on Twitter. Bandy is great. We'll soon have his book on Mozart out, I think. So Dorian, at Dorian K. Bandy, yes, who I uh, know via Twitter. Um, so he's, he's bringing out a book on Mozart, who's, and he's going to be talking about Popperian epistemology and that, so that's exciting. And I said in response to Ernst, uh, thanks for that, Ernst. I realised on recording that section, I'm being lazy and not looking this up right now. But I'd gone to the trouble of looking up his book and reading sections from it, so I felt that was enough. In other words, what I'm saying there is in that tweet, I, I, I got the sense that Popper and Gombrich were friends. I should have gone and researched it, but I was just too lazy. That's <laughs> good that Ernst picked me up on that. Um, I then also tweeted to Jordan Peterson, because uh, I... I, I tweeted about his interview with Matt Ridley. At some point during that conversation with Matt Ridley, he was talking about science and how science arises in societies and what the preconditions are, and he was getting himself confused. He was trying to think it through from first principles. I think he got off track. I don't think he quite got it right. And I tweeted to Jordan Peterson. I said to him, quote, the precondition, by the way, for science, at least open-ended science, is a tradition of criticism. See The Beginning of Infinity by David Deutsch, which takes us to something like an epistemological explanation for the Enlightenment, by which I mean our Enlightenment. So, yes, Jordan Peterson, uh, he clearly has a good understanding, I would say, of the Enlightenment, but I don't think he's read David Deutsch, and he probably should, to have a better understanding of epistemology and the epistemological antecedents of the Enlightenment, namely having the capacity to criticise and then that becoming a tradition of criticism. I said a few more things about that interview with Jordan Peterson and Matt Ridley, uh, which I won't go through now. It seems to me like this newsletter is going on far longer than I thought, so I'm not going to get through all of my tweets in the way that I hoped right now. So maybe I'll just pick a few others. One is from... Uh, DG, and I, D, DJ, DG. Uh, a few people have tweeted to me that I think I think it must be Spotify. Spotify is is telling people what their most listened to podcast is. Anyway, DG among others said, well, DG in particular said, thanks Brett for the insight and companionship while reading The Beginning of Infinity by David Deutsch, and thanks Naval for mentioning this gem. So. So he's listed all of his um, favourite podcasts, his most listened to podcasts, and Topcast came out number one. 
He wasn't the only one to tweeted at me about that, which is nice. Um, a number of news places reported that the director, the Avatar director, the Terminator director, the, the, the Titanic movie director, James Cameron, he said in an interview that testosterone is a toxin. Men must terminate from their system. And in response to one of these articles, I just said, quote, just a toxin in men is the natural testosterone women have, not a toxin then, end quote. So, you know, ridiculous claim. This is more woke nonsense. This attack on men or masculinity, and now it's become, you know, literally testosterone is a toxin. This is bizarre. This is a bizarre claim, but at least it gets to the heart of the matter. I mean, you're really focusing in supposedly on masculinity there. In theory, this is a thing that makes, you know, one of the things that defines masculinity, you know, the, the presence of testosterone. But of course, it's also in women, you know, if it's taken seriously, taken literally, if it really is a toxin, it's a ridiculous claim. Is it also toxic in women or is it only toxic in men? Why is it toxic? What, what, what specifically? Because it causes bigger muscles, wider shoulders, narrower hips? What? what? Uh, the aggression perhaps, but there's the aggression of toxin during, you know, a defensive war, you know, the testosterone that was required by soldiers fighting for the Allies against Hitler, was that, was that toxic? <sighs> Asking silly questions, I suppose. As someone tweeted about a news story from Australia, and this person's not from Australia, David Burge, who tweeted about a story that appeared uh, on December 2nd, which is where a woman, a climate activist, Violet Coco, was given a 15-month sentence Eight months, no parole, after she blocked one lane of the Harbour Bridge for 25 minutes in April. And the original quote said that it was an outrageous decision that was made in a Sydney court. And this David Burge fellow, who's got hundreds of thousands of followers, he said, Outrageous. That's 15 months of a young woman's life she could have spent blocking more bridges. <laughs> so he's... he's taking a shot at the person who said that it was outrageous that this woman should have been given a 15-month sentence. And someone, someone has tweeted back to this David Burge fellow saying, uh, you know, fair comment, but eight months is a pretty significant sentence for a nuisance crime. And so anyway, I've responded just with a single word saying nuisance question mark. And the reason I have is because I've quoted a news article which said, quote, to, to go into more detail about this, this person that blocked the Harbour Bridge, this news story said, court documents stated that a New South Wales ambulance, which had activated its red and blue lights, was forced to stop on the Harbour Bridge on the way to an emergency. This imposition to a critical emergency service has the potential to result in a fatality, documents seen by the news source said. Quite right. Quite right. If you're going to start blocking highways, in this case a bridge which is also a highway, part of a highway, and you're going to continue to block it even when an ambulance with its sirens on, possibly transporting someone to hospital to get life-saving care, you're, you're slowing that process down, you're per perhaps stopping that process, you're perhaps going to cause the death of someone because of your actions in protesting, well, then, yeah, we need to tell, you know, give a bit of a message to the rest of the community that this is not okay. Blocking highways for this reason is not okay. You want to have a protest, that's fine. Put a banner up. You know, go on the side of the road. Don't block the road. You could kill someone. It's not merely a nuisance. Uh, keep on going. I might just um, pause over the fact that 
I retweeted David Deutsch, one of his old tweets, where he said, quote, Postmodernism and woke are not reversions to the pre-modern. They are the latest perversion of and rebellion against the Enlightenment. End quote. Quite right. So, you know, there's this... I, I have argued that woke is a particular version of postmodernism. It's self-coming from continental European philosophy. That's where it originated, but it has... Its precursors are there. But in neither case, in none of these cases, is it a reversion to the pre-modern. It's not like it's... You know, that this kind of thing existed back in the classic era. Not quite, let alone the ancient era. No, people were striving to understand stuff back then. This is a rejection of attempting to understand stuff. In many cases saying, well, truth is not knowable, that sort of thing. Truth is not knowable, you can't search for it, it doesn't exist. That's a rebellion against the Enlightenment, as David says there. And then I've responded to Michael Nielsen. Uh, the, the, the quantum physicist wrote a, wrote a fantastic book on quantum computation and he tweeted he's writing a book now on uh, seemingly philosophy of science but he's calling it meta science or something uh, anyway uh, I get the impression just from reading some of his stuff interesting enough but he's not it, it's always I find it useful to build on what other people have done, or to take seriously at least you know what, what other people have sensibly said on this topic about philosophy of science. You know where I'm coming from with this, but Michael Nielsen doesn't seem to be doing this. He's trying to start from the ground up. Okay, fair play, you know, to try and be interesting and you know don't don't pollute your mind with the ideas of others. Maybe you'll come up with something original. But I think it. Well, let's just see what he tweeted, and I'll I'll, I'll tell you what I think about this. He tweeted, and he's 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 provided the text from, I think, his own writing. And he says, quote, something which puzzles me about the structure of knowledge, why some statements are so enormously more important than others of comparable length. I have a lot of trouble articulating this, and maybe it's not a real problem, but I suspect it is, end quote. And then he goes on to quote his own lengthy text. And his problem he seems to be focused on is, why is it that you know, you have people publishing stuff in scientific journals, and, you know, the articles can be the same length, but some of them end up getting cited a lot and having huge impact and others don't. And he's saying that's a mystery to him. It puzzles him about the structure of knowledge. Why are some statements so enormously more important than others of comparable length? I, I don't see that this is a problem. So you've got two statements of comparable length, two scientific papers of equal length. One gets a lot of attention, is important, and one doesn't. How is that a mystery? What, what I said is, quote, some papers contain more errors or misconceptions than others. I actually put a question mark at the end of that. So some papers contain more errors and misconceptions than others. And I've gone on. Knowledge is information that solves a problem. And because it does, it counts as useful. So it gets copied, which makes it important. Mere information that does not count as knowledge doesn't so tends to be less resilient, end quote. So yeah, I, I just think that, well, you can have two claims to knowledge, two statements of comparable length, one's going to be more important than, other, than the other, insofar as one of them is a real knowledge claim, contains less error, less misconception. The other could be a complete and utter falsehood, completely false in all respects. It contains no useful information. It's not knowledge, so it's not going to get copied. This makes all the difference. 
I don't see that, you know, you could ask what it is about the thing that gets copied that makes it knowledge. And then I would say, you know, perhaps in a circular way, or well, one of them is more useful, one of them solves a problem, one of them can actually go on to lead to more discoveries, perhaps lead to technology, lead to cures, lead to an explanation, an account of what's really out there in the world, all of this kind of stuff. But just because two statements have the same length doesn't mean they both have the same information content, much less knowledge content. Okay, so I don't see a, a great mystery there. But you know, Mike, Michael's doing his own thing when it comes to epistemology, it seems. But I, I, I think he would be enormously helped by reading Popper. But people just don't read Popper. There, there's a lot of people who just have very little respect for philosophy in general. They lump Popper in with everything else. They think, well, they can do it because, especially if they're, they're coming from a scientific background, they think, I'm a scientist, I'm a physicist, I, I know more than these philosophers, and they're probably quite right, you know, when it comes to <laughs> their academic colleagues at the universities that they've encountered. You know, they've had, they've had coffee with some of these philosophers and they're unimpressed. Okay, fair enough. But that doesn't mean that, you know, Karl Popper is in that same category. You can learn something from Karl Popper. You really can. Then, apropos of nothing, I've tweeted, quote, In this episode of predictions playing a part in generating conditions which go on to disprove them, all the claims Twitter had a few days left, causing traffic to go up as record numbers tuned in to watch, among other reasons. And then I've gone on to say, these never were predictions, but pure prophecy. Okay, so what I'm saying there is, th there was a whole bunch of people a couple of weeks ago saying, basically, Twitter's about to end. Twitter's got a few days left at most. Musk has taken over. People are fleeing from the platform. It's about to collapse. All the advertisers are leaving. It's, it's a bankrupt platform. Uh, there's no hope. You know, a lot of people, in fact, did leave or at least said they were going to leave. But they were making these so-called predictions, saying Twitter didn't have long to go. And they all turned out to be false. Now, one reason they turned out to be false, among many, it was just never true to begin with, but could be simply articulating, simply saying to the world, Twitter hasn't got long to left, Twitter's about to collapse, means that people who don't use Twitter that often are rushing to Twitter to see the catastrophe unfold. And that actually goes some way to preventing the tragedy from unfolding, to prevent the collapse, because uh, Twitter survives, you know, lives or dies by the number of users. <laughs> so you've encouraged more users to come simply by saying the place is going to collapse on itself. People want to see that. <laughs> so, yeah, it's a, it's a case of... Uh, the prediction generating conditions which go on to disprove that very prediction. David Deutsch has made this point before. Someone said in response, this episode of predictions was as good as Y2K. Uh, but now I, I've disagreed with that. I've said that Y2K was a genuine prediction in terms of counterfactuals. Like, if we do not do X, Y, and Z, then the bug will cause computer crashes because of some good explanation. And so what actually happened in Y2K is they, they did the X, Y, and Z that was necessary, which prevented, you know, the, the crash of all the computers. There, there was a good explanation of why the computers would crash. It genuinely was a good explanation. But I've also said here, on the other hand, the Twitter prophets never had any such good prediction. Now, this tweet didn't make it into the last few days. It was something I tweeted last week. Naval retweeted it. And it was a thread on how we'll really find alien life. And what I said in this thread was, well, the first tweet of the thread I, I did say, 
Uh, how will we really find alien life? Never mind grainy pictures of flying saucers or finding bacteria on Mars. The most promising way of detecting life elsewhere will be seen in spectra of light from distant stars passing through the atmospheres of planets orbiting them. End quote. And then I've gone on to describe the interesting science that the James Webb Space Telescope is doing in detecting the chemical composition of the atmospheres of distant planets, exoplanets. It's fantastic stuff. And I think, well, we hope, we hope that we're going to detect the biosignature of life out there somewhere or other. Okay, this, this, is, this is good, great science. Anyway, someone, someone has asked an interesting question about this in the last day or so. They said to me, tweeted at me, quote, out of curiosity, do we also look for life forms that would rely on different biochemistry? I suppose the process would be similar, but what would we be looking for? And I've responded, not for lack of trying. First, we need an explanation of what is viable, perhaps silicon instead of carbon, but the molecules lack complexity. Or ammonia instead of water as a solvent, the reaction rate is too slow. Maybe protons nuclei can do something strange on the surface of neutron stars. Okay, end quote. So people often ask this, you know, people who, especially people who aren't familiar with the field of astrobiology. Astrobiology is a field. Uh, it's, it's about you know, what could life elsewhere in the universe consist of. And it, it's a worth, people say, well, you know, how can you, how can you possibly study something for which there's no subject matter? You know, we don't have any astrobiology to study. That's true, but you can also constrain what it's possible to make life out of. You know, it's no point postulating an, an alien life form that is made of nothing but hydrogen. Hydrogen can only form, bond with itself once to form H2 molecules. It doesn't form H3, it can't form long chains, so there's good chemical and physical reasons why this is the case. And so, but people do say, you know, things like, oh, you know, the scientists, they don't have enough imagination. We could have life made out of this, that, or the other end. Life as we can't conceive it. Well, kind of. I mean, that the scientists do have good imaginations and they try and imagine strange chemistries, strange ways in which bonding could happen. But if you want genetic information to be passed on, if you want to have generations, which means you want evolution, you want life. That's what life would be. You have these, this kind of feature of being able to be copied, uh, complexity being copied. Then you need something that can store the information. And so we know that DNA exists. That's, this is carbon-based life. Well, why is carbon so useful? Because it's got a valency of four. It's got four electrons in the outermost shell. This enables it to make long chains and rings and all sorts of really interesting molecules. Carbon on its own can bond with more things, make more a greater variety of chemistry than all the other the chemical elements combined can make with each other, okay? carbon alone. Now, the, the element that is most closely resembling carbon on the periodic table is silicon. So people try and imagine silicon-based life form. And it, science fiction sort of writers like this, but when the chemists really get involved and really try and look at, okay, is this feasible? Just because silicon is kind of like carbon in some ways, it doesn't work. You can't get really long chains of, of silicon in the same way you can with carbon. You just can't make DNA with silicon. It's too brittle. So that doesn't work. But you can't have complex molecules. So that doesn't work, actually. And some people say, well, okay, what about if we had something other than water instead of water-based life? Because, you know, every bit of life on Earth 
contains water in some way. Well, what could you use instead of water? You want reactions to take place because we're sort of chemical reactions happening in this big bag of water. <laughs> we are the bag of water. We've got water floating around in us. The chemical reactions with carbon chemicals and stuff. What could we use instead? Well, you could try ammonia, NH3. That's kind of like water, but uh, in fact, it doesn't work either. Why? Because it's only a liquid. You need a liquid of some sort for the, the things to dissolve in, the other chemicals are dissolving. But although ammonia has similar properties to water, it only has those similar properties at a much lower temperature. And if you've got a lower temperature, the reaction rate is slower. So again, ammonia doesn't work. So anytime you try and vary carbon-based life for something else or water for something else, you run into problems. And this is why not only do we go looking for life as we know it, but we have good reasons to suspect that any life out there is kind of similar to life as we know it in that regard, that it's going to have DNA and it's going to be kind of water-based as well. My, maybe it's something else, but for now, let's just look for that because every other kind of life we imagine, there's good criticisms against it. Why waste time on things we think we've refuted here on Earth already? Hmm? Let's go with the best explanation, the best conjecture perhaps. Okay, I think that's where I'll end the discussion of tweets that I've been a part of. Uh, in the last 10 minutes or so, I'll go to uh, my list of likes over the last weekend, uh, last few days. And I won't go through all my likes, but uh, just, just some. Uh, I liked a, a tweet by David Deutsch, who has quoted an article from the US Air Force, which unveiled today their B-21 radar bomber, a stealth bomber. And he said, may it fulfill its purpose by never needing to be used in anger, <laughs> which is nice. You know, most of these big military things are deterrents. I liked a Robin Hansen tweet who said, I haven't seen it in my feed. And he's responding to a New York Times article, which says, which is titled, Hate speeches rise on Twitter is unprecedented. Researchers find. But of course, that is by the New York Times. And uh, unfortunately, we now know that if you read something from the New York Times, you have to question it. But if you're going to place bets, you'd probably bet on it being the opposite. The truth is actually the opposite to whatever the New York Times happens to say that's a sad state of affairs but, you know if if new york times says hate speech is going up uh, you can presume it's actually probably going down and as robin hansen says there he hasn't seen it in his feed possibly because it's gone down i like to tweet by someone who calls themselves the red-headed libertarian who just said based <laughs> and they've tweeted a video of jordan peterson now what did jordan peterson have to say in this video. It's only 22 seconds long, so let me play you the clip. You know how I stopped being faced by protests at universities when I went to talk there? I hold my talks at eight o'clock in the morning. <laughs> yeah, and you know why that's funny? Because none of the bloody protesters will haul themselves out of bed to come and agitate about the magical super Nazi because it's eight in the morning. Yeah, so that's nice. He's just observing there that the kind of people who protest him <laughs> are not the kind of people who get up before nine o'clock in the morning. <laughs> you know, if you've got the energy to devote to protesting Jordan Peterson, I would argue, then you only have that energy because you're a kind of lazy person. 
you haven't taken time to really understand his ideas and compare them to your existing worldview. Because if you did, you wouldn't be protesting him. So you're a lazy kind of a person. So therefore, you're not the kind of person who's willing to get up early in the morning in order to defend your cherished beliefs. I don't think everyone who gets up early in the morning is necessarily not lazy or vice versa. I'm just saying that you're not going to do the thing that is required that you do to have some sort of discipline if you're a lazy person. If you're a lazy person, you're just going to fall into your regular patterns of behaviour. You're going to fall back on that. And lazy people also don't like to critique themselves. So the Venn diagram <laughs> might be a single circle of lazy people and people who aren't willing to think through things themselves. Uh, the next few likes are me liking Meta Luli, which is Luli Tannant's alternative account. And she's, uh, it's a Twitter, it's not really a podcast, it's a set of audio clips uh, called The Morning Teapot, <laughs> which are great. They're, they're very funny, uh, insightful reflections as we would expect from Luli. And so, yeah, short audio clips go to Meta Luli, or one word, at Meta Luli, and listen to her audio, her audio um, contributions to making Twitter a nice, funny, thoughtful place. <laughs> I've then liked <laughs> a tweet from Martin Bauer. Martin Bauer's a particle quantum physicist, associate professor at Durham University. Anyway, <laughs> he's tweeted a simple question, quote, so this wormhole, is it in the room with us right now? <laughs> End quote. So, you know, that, that's, a, that's riffing on the trope that is uh, what psychologists do to people, you know, <laughs> if, they're, if they're having hallucinations. You know? <laughs> you know, is, is, the, is the ghost or is the demon in the room with us right now? <laughs> it's a fictional entity. <laughs> is the wormhole... <laughs> I like to tweet from Rita Panahai. Rita Panahai is an Australian journalist uh, that I tend to follow. Uh, she's quite insightful. She's uh, well respected uh, globally. She's quite liked by you know people like Ben Shapiro and others. Anyway, she's said, "Sweet Jesus, the deliberate dimwittedness is pathetic." <laughs> and why has she said this? Well, in response to a tweet from. Someone called Noah Smith, who's a writer on Substack, he's got, you know, over a quarter of a million followers, so he's, uh, he's well known, uh, he's followed by some people I follow, and anyway, uh, he said, quote, I am still not sure why I'm supposed to care the slightest bit about Hunter Biden or his laptop, end quote. <laughs> so he's pretending not to realise why you should care. Of course, as Douglas Murray said, Change the rules, you know, turn this not into a story about Hunter Biden and his laptop and all his shenanigans, but instead to Donald Trump Jr. If the same situation was true of Donald Trump Jr., he had this laptop with all sorts of nasty behavior, apparently <laughs> being, you know, evidence of that on the laptop, would it be out of the headlines? Of course it wouldn't. We know the answer to that. There's a double standard operating here. Now, whatever side of politics you're on, you shouldn't appreciate a double standard. Well, at least you should appreciate that it exists right now, but it shouldn't. It shouldn't exist. And so, you know, Rita Panahai is having a go at Noah Smith for being deliberately dim-wittedness. In other words, pretending not to know why anyone would care about this, including himself. 
But of course, he would be. Now, I kind of agree it's not important. But what I recognize is that if it was anyone from Trump's family that was smoking crack and sleeping with prostitutes and there was evidence of this, we, we know that that, that that would be headlines in the New York Times on CNN. They would never stop talking about it. But because it's Hunter Biden, because it's Joe Biden's son, we don't hear about it. Barely. Okay, it's only the conservative media. So, yes, Rita's quite right. I liked a tweet from, again, I think it's Matt is his name. He's calling himself Natural General Intelligence. In response to Michael Nielsen and that uh, unusual question he asked, why some statements are enormously more important than others of comparable length, well, Matt, I think his name's Matt, has said, has just asked the question, why should length be connected to importance? Quite right, exactly. You know, only got one like from me, uh, but, but but deserves more attention. That's, that's exactly right. Carlos de la Guardia, another great Popperian online, uh, has great tweets and, you know, contributes a lot to the Twitter discussion. Uh, well worth following. Um, he's at, at D-E-L-A-3499. <laughs> and uh, he tweeted... You know, all about knowledge and various things, but, but the tweet that I liked in particular of his, he said, quote, knowledge can be like the world in different ways. You can capture and express different kinds of regularities in nature. Yes, and this was a, a long thread of tweets that he had uh, writing about a book that he's reading um, called The Joy of Abstraction by Eugenia Cheng. Go to Carlos's account for more about that. I liked a, oh, this is wonderful. I liked a tweet by a person called Carol Roth at Carol, C-A-R-O-L, J-S Roth, R-O-T-H, or one word. And she has retweeted something from 2012 because she said, yes, today is the 10-year anniversary of the Muskets tweet. And she had tweeted to Piers Morgan. Now, Piers Morgan, the British journalist, who, yeah, it's hard to put him on the spectrum politically. Yeah, he's all over the place. Uh, I don't find that he has a coherent worldview. This is always the problem with people who, you know, sort of upset both sides and think that this is a sign that they're on the right track. It could just mean that they're completely wrong. <laughs> what, it, what it indicates to me is there's a, there could be, not always, but there could be a lack of principle there. They're not picking a side because they... They don't have principles that align with either side, but in general, you will. In general, people will. And one of the difficulties I have sometimes with objectivism, let's say Euron Brook, much as I respect him, highly respect Euron Brook, uh, you know, he's very critical of the left. He's very critical of the right. I agree with it most of the time, but I think that sometimes he might strive a little too hard to be balanced and has a go at the conservatives sometimes rightly, but sometimes I think, well, look, if you're forced to choose between the coercion that exists on the left and the sometimes coercion that happens on the right, and you're a defender of capitalism, look, you have to accept that the conservatives do cleave more closely to free market capitalism. Yeah, of course they're not perfect. No one's going to be perfect by your own Brooks lights. Unless we, you know, brought... Ayn Rand back from the dead and had her run for the presidency or had one of his philosophers from the Ayn Rand society or something running for the presidency. No one's going to meet his strict criteria. 
And so forced to choose, I'd say, well, look, I, I'd, I'd think maybe the Ted Cruz's of the world, wrong as they are, are going to be better, better than, you know, the Joe Bidens of the world. Uh, that's just me. Uh, so I, I think that you, some, people can sometimes strive a little too hard to be even-handed, not recognising the virtue in the people that they generally disagree with and to find places where they agree. Okay, let's put that aside. Separate issue. Piers Morgan is someone who you can't easily categorise, but I think he's not in the same way that Euron Brook can't be categorised. Euron Brook definitely has principles, absolutely. Piers Morgan can't be categorised because perhaps of his lack of principles, lack of a coherent philosophy that underpins the perspective he tends to hold. So whatever, sometimes people accuse him of being too conservative, sometimes not. But he engaged with this person, Carol Roth. And Carol Roth is, uh, I don't know, she's an author, author of some kind, 171,000 followers. And the exchange went like this between her and Piers Morgan. Piers Morgan tweeted, quote, the Second Amendment was devised with muskets in mind, not high-powered handguns and assault rifles. Fact. And Carol's responded, it was devised for people to be able to protect themselves with the same type of weaponry used by those from whom they might need protection. And Piers said, where exactly does it say that in the Constitution? Must have missed it, question mark. And Carol's responded, <laughs> this is almost timeless <laughs> in its perfection. She just said, right next to the word muskets, <laughs> end quote. <laughs> which is perfect. Uh, what she means there is, of course, the word muskets does not appear in the Second Amendment. And so if Piers Morgan's saying, well, the reason the Second Amendment was devised was because it was supposed to protect the rights of people with muskets. But hold on. <laughs> the, the, the Second Amendment, the Constitution doesn't mention the word muskets at all. So if you're going to make, start making claims about, you know, the Second Amendment being made for muskets or people with muskets or anything like that, then I can come back with any old claim about what the Second Amendment is actually about, okay? Carol's saying it's actually about to enable people to protect themselves with weaponry against people who've got the same type of weapons. And, and Piers is objecting to that. Well, it doesn't say that in the Second Amendment. Well, it doesn't say anything about muskets either, Okay, uh, it says that, you know, the Second Amendment talks about militias and whatever, and people generally interpret this as, you know, the right to bear arms. What kind of arms? Oh, yeah, okay, then we get into a question. What kind of arms? Is it muskets or is it any kind of weapon that allows you to defend yourself from other people, from the government, from tyrannical people? Well, we're... Uh, a knowledgeable understanding of this thing is, is, is indeed about tyranny. It's indeed about protecting uh, a citizen being able to protect themselves against tyranny, tyranny of the government. That's the whole idea of the American experiment, protecting themselves from tyranny, you know, originally from the British tyranny, British royal tyranny. That's how they gained their independence. And so, of course, they, 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 they created they created this new system of government. Okay. Of the people, by the people, for the people, you know, all that sort of stuff. But anyway, it's a, a wonderful exchange there. <laughs> right next to the word muskets, she said. <laughs> uh, skipping to, I liked a tweet from the director of TED, uh, which is 
One of the places where David Deutsch, of course, has become famous is via TED and Chris Anderson, uh, you know, the, the chairperson, director of, of TED. He has tweeted, quote, All the news that's fit to print. I'm shocked, which is the, the, the byline of the New York Times, the masthead. And he's gone on to say, I'm shocked that the New York Times appears so far to have had exactly zero coverage of chat GPT. Surely the biggest tech innovation of the year. Big win for Twitter on this one. The examples curated here have been breathtaking. End quote. Yes, so chat GPT is the thing that I've been referring to throughout this podcast about how this computer program is able to generate, you know, the interesting bits of text, stories, jokes, poems, and that kind of thing. And the New York Times hasn't talked about it at all. But the list of things that the New York Times doesn't talk about uh, is long, even though they're newsworthy. And the things that it does talk about that aren't newsworthy is also long. It, it's, a sad, it's a sad thing. This is so-called paper of record, as they used to call themselves. I liked a tweet by Elon Musk saying, great work by the Twitter Spaces team. In response to, uh, he was on Twitter Spaces. Twitter Spaces is the sort of radio version of Twitter. People can get together in a room effectively and talk, you know, via audio. One person has the microphone at a time and they, they, they just talk. That's Twitter's version of, of, of Clubhouse, if you know what that is. And Elon was on his own Twitter spaces, and I, I listened in for a bit of that, so I quite liked it. Uh, I liked a tweet by a fellow called Arsen Atrovsky, who's a human rights lawyer, and he said, quote, Israelis should never have to apologize for defending ourselves, full stop. Uh, and, and I agree, I couldn't agree more. I liked a tweet from a friend of mine, Mason Hellcat, who um, <laughs> has done a send-up, a parody. He's a comedian. Mason Mason is a comedian, stand-up comedian. He does sketch comedy and various other things. And uh, he's done a little sketch on the news, the Australian news reporting on water restrictions. He's sending up water restrictions. We often have water restrictions here in Australia because of droughts, but recently it's been floods, it's been a lot of floods. And so he's, he's doing um, water unrestrictions, as if you have to use more water than usual. The water restrictions are usually, you must use less water than usual. <laughs> anyway, so Mason has done a send up both of um, the newsreader and the reporter, <laughs> the kind of reporters and newsreaders that you get in Australia. So anyway, so that's, that's Mason. Look up Mason Hellcat on Twitter, all one word, M-A-S-O-N-H-E-L-L-C-A-T. Uh, I then liked a tweet from Nassim Taleb. Nassim Taleb, uh, in a rare interaction with David Deutsch, which I think a lot of people have been waiting for this crossover, <laughs> of all things, uh, because Taleb has often expressed admiration for Karl Popper. Uh, and anyway, without going into the details here, yeah, someone tweeted at David Deutsch about, or tweeted at both Nassim and David, about again chat gpt about you know what would happen between an encounter a conversation between david deutsch and nassim taleb and what the ai has produced is a conversation that david deutsch disagreed with the sentiments of uh, he said lies damned lies <laughs> and among other things, he said some other things, and then Taleb has said he agrees with David Deutsch's criticism, and then he's he's posted his own essay on, on certain aspects of epistemology, and David has said about his essay, nice essay, I largely agree. 
the key to AGI will have to be something well-defined yet informal. And he goes on from there. And Taleb says, coming from you, a worthy compliment, among other things. And I've liked that. It, I, I have not seen, although I don't follow Taleb, so it might be right. Might, I could be just be completely off here, but I only tend to see Taleb when he said something awful <laughs> to various people. And here, it's unusual because he's said something nice to someone, to David Deutsch. So that's, that's lovely. David has managed to extract a compliment from Nassim Taleb. Among all of David Deutsch's other powers, well, this, <laughs> this is one that truly deserves everyone's respect. I've then liked uh, a meme that Lex Friedman has shared. I don't know if he created this meme or not. I don't think he did. Well, what he said firstly is he said, struggle and failure are a fundamental part of learning. If you embrace this fact, it starts being fun, end quote, which I agree with. And he's also reprinted a meme. And the meme is of Sheldon Cooper from the television show Big Bang Theory. And he's holding a paper, what is no doubt a, a paper of, of physics, I presume, he's reading through. And he's screaming at it. And one panel after another, he's just screaming, why, why, why? He's unhappy, increasingly unhappy. And then in the final panel, he's happy again. And he just says, oh, that's why. <laughs> and, and, you know, it, it's titled Science Students, Science Students, which is exactly right. You know, you do science and, of course, you, you go, I don't understand, I don't understand, I don't understand. Ah, oh, now I get it. Now I get it. So that moment of, of coming to an understanding of something. Skipping a few more, and uh, I get to uh, liking responses of of people who liked my tweet, which probably comes just outside of the weekend, probably uh, late Sunday. So I haven't included this, but well, let me go to it. Generated a little bit of interest, and that tweet was started with a tweet. Tweet thread began with a tweet that said, "Quote: This is me talking." Charging for plastic bags is soft corporatism, namely a retail policy government expresses support of when it should have no opinion. The article in the Express newspaper says Tesco, quote, don't make money from the sale of carrier bags. That's misleading at best, perhaps a deliberate lie. My next tweet has said, because just to, just to emphasize, so that tweet I've quoted the article and the article has said, that Tesco has said they don't make money from the sale of carrier bags. But you go to the article and you, you find the quote. Who are they quoting at Tesco? They're quoting some marketing manager fellow. And he never said that. He never said that Tesco don't make money from the sale of carrier bags. What he actually said was, we do not want to make money from the sale of carrier bags. And I've explained that, quote, the words want to make all the difference. Right, end quote. There's a big difference between actually making money or not from the sale of plastic bags and not wanting to make money. <laughs> it's very different things. You might not want to make money, but still make lots of money. Or you might not. You might say you don't want to make money, but still do, which I think is what's really going on. Okay. And anyway, I've I've gone on with a bit of a tweet storm on this kind of stuff, saying how, you know, all you know, many countries in the Western world, in particular, Australia. United States, as well as Britain, all have governments getting involved in trying to coerce, strong arm, whatever word you want to use, retailers 
in charging for plastic bags in some way, shape or form. Now, I've said a lot of things about this, but, but basically, you know, amongst other things, I said that, you know, in response to some people who were discussing my, my thread, I said, I used single-use bags as garbage bags. I'm not alone in this. They never were single-use bags. When replaced by reusable bags for a fee, my habits didn't change. I just paid more for the higher quality bag. If I didn't, then I'd be buying yet more plastic, i.e. garbage bags, end quote. So, yeah, this whole environmental movement of taking away garbage bags, I found it, in my personal case, I've become, it's become more environmentally unfriendly. I need to have a bag, as everyone does, to put your rubbish in. And so I used to think, well, it's a great idea for me to just, you know, it's a win-win. <laughs> the, 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 the supermarket gives me a plastic bag. I then use the bag to wrap up my rubbish, and then that gets thrown away. Everything gets thrown away in one big bundle. But now what happens is, well, instead of having this flimsy plastic bag, they give me a more robust bag, a stronger bag that is more than single use. But in fact, I get the same number of uses out of it to carry my shopping home and then to use as a, as, a, as a rubbish bag. After all, if I didn't use it as a rubbish bag, I still need a rubbish bag. I still need somewhere to put the garbage. So am I going to purchase a packet of bags as, you know, labelled garbage bags? Well, I could do that, of course. There's nothing stopping me from doing that, but it just means I'm doubling up then. So now I'm buying more plastic. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas I, I used to just have a flimsy plastic bag. It makes no sense. I think most people did reuse those so-called single-use plastic bags. Yeah, sure, some people just threw them into the garbage, but I think those people were in a minority. This is more about, as I insinuate in my thread there, I guess a reasonable explanation is the shopping centre, supermarkets, you know, CEOs, whoever have meetings with politicians and then say things like, you know, the politicians say, what are you doing about climate change? What are your green policies? And, you know, you need to have some green policies. And they, they, they say to the politician, well, you know, how about we, uh, we try and reduce plastic bag use? What if we charge for plastic bags? That would dissuade people from doing this. Uh, if you pass legislation, uh, we'll be sure to follow that legislation. And so <laughs> this is what happens, you know. So it's, it's a win-win for the government and the supermarkets, the government gets to say, look at what we're doing. Look at how we're telling the, the, the companies to try and reduce the use of plastic by encouraging their, their customers not to use so much plastic in the form of bags. And, and, and the supermarket gets to say, oh, look at us. You know, we're, we're now charging for plastic bags. Isn't that good? That's preventing our customers from using plastic bags. Now, meanwhile, the poor old customer is left on the sidelines there, and all that happens with them is they just pay more for plastic bags. They don't reduce their amount of plastic. They still need a bag to carry the shopping home. They still need a bag to throw out their rubbish with. Nothing has changed, except now they're paying more money. So, again, it's a win-win for the government, and it's a loss for the customer. So that's it. That's the end of the experiment, so to speak, the whole point of which was to tweet more than normal and to see what came back. Was I going to have a negative experience? Well, no, I haven't. It's been overall entirely positive. Entirely positive. I mean, somewhere between neutral and entirely positive, I should say. There was nothing negative there and nothing came back to me that was negative. Now, again, I fully admit I don't have that many followers. And it's got to be a function of how many followers you have as to what your experience is going to be like, at least in part. But it's also going to be what kind of conversations you will engage in, 
who you surround yourself with, what communities you're a part of on Twitter. How you use the platform is going to shape what your experience is. But it's not a cesspool. It's not a terrible place. It's not falling apart. It's not going to rack and ruin. It remains as it has always been, a place that you can make for yourself, just like any other social media platform. Yes, there are corners where people are lurking that aren't all that pleasant. Yes, there are certain people who have very loud voices and very large audiences that say things they shouldn't say. But it's incumbent upon the rest of us, I suppose, to try and foster the conditions under which we can continue a tradition of criticism, to continue a way in which to elevate the voices that should be elevated and to criticise the voices that need to be criticised in terms that allow us to show that certain voices maybe don't deserve to be elevated to the heights that they sometimes are. So you can have a good experience is all I'm saying, that no matter how often I spend on Twitter, if I really try hard to spend lots of time there, I didn't find myself becoming addicted to have a compulsion to go back and check. Uh, maybe that's just me. I also didn't find that I was becoming anxious or worried or upset about the behaviour of anyone else. So, yes, I think it's quite possible to continue to have a good experience on Twitter. Does it mean you should spend lots and lots of time there? Well, no more so than doing anything else. You should spend just as much time as is fun to be there. If it ceases to be fun, then don't go back. I mean, that's a simple heuristic for absolutely any activity one would engage in in regular life. Okay, I think that's enough for now. Until next time, bye-bye.